being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong jesus is that i'm sorry i i don't i hope it doesn't <laughs> offend you if i no no it's um is this the longest like conversation um i think soon it will oh be my God. <laughs> <laughs> And and the time has flown by, really. I mm-hmm. think um, I keep looking up and being like, "Oh my god, another two hours just went by." <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, okay. So back on track. So, so so McVeigh, yeah. He he. His first contact was with Roger Moore, and uh, that guy has this whole other deal. Um, and and like he's not just some I'm just he's not just some guy he meets at a gun show like that is not who mm-hmm. this guy is um, because he kind of takes McVeigh under his wing and in fact often is like oh hey you should go talk to these people you should go meet these people and uh, he seems to be like one of Roger Moore's functions seems to be like the connector of people like connecting this person to that person to this person like some kind of coordinator um and uh, of course and and McVeigh himself and he was not shy but he doesn't say it in American terrorist but he says it to his attorneys and so does Perry Nichols he says like uh look Moore was providing me with explosives so and um one of the in the federal indictment against both Nichols and McVeigh they said the the way that they funded the bombing was to cause the um a robbery of Roger Moore and like I I do go into that rob quote-unquote robbery but um one thing that's new to me like there's always been speculation about like how this robbery of of Roger Moore went down and however it happened a shit ton of 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 guns and other things were taken and then sold and that's supposedly how this this bombing is funded um but uh it it appears according to Terry Nichols and at times McVeigh that Roger Moore was in on it. Like Roger Moore basically was like, Hey, you guys pretend to rob me or not because Tim McVeigh doesn't do the robbery. He has Terry Nichols do it. Like, Hey, you guys rob me. And that way you've got all of these, like sometimes many unregistered weapons, like in your hands. And then you just do what you're going to do with those things. And they, go about selling them and plant sometimes planting them on people but uh what what's new to me is that one of the stories that terry nichols tells his defense is like i didn't even rob him he's like i showed up to his door and he just hands me the guns like the robbery (laughs) is a story that's constructed later in 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 uh in this version that Terry Nichols tells privately and again telling this not knowing that this is ever going to get into Wendy Painting's hands later um, <laughs> yeah yeah okay I'll let you just take the lead here let's see here so 
with okay, we did Roger Moore. Were we going to talk about Jack Oliphant's here? Um, yeah. Did that? I don't even. Does that make sense? It, it could. Yeah, yeah. Let me get to in these notes where, yes, Kingman, Arizona. Oh, okay, so like shortly after the quote-unquote robbery of Roger Moore, or whatever you want to call it, the transfer of Roger Moore's weapons into the hands of Tim McVeigh and friends. McVeigh, he had been spending a lot of time out in Kingman, Arizona, and offloading. Both him and Nichols are like showing up to gun shows and selling these guns they got for Moore. So in my book, I talk about, I talk about Johnny Bangerter, and mm-hmm. I talk about how in late 94 or I talk about how at some point in late 94, early 95, Johnny Bangerter's family is getting like a series of phone calls um, from someone saying, hey, I'm friends with uh, so-and-so, like people that they knew. They're like, I, I want to come talk to you. And two of the people they mentioned um, one was Dick Kaufman, uh, the organizer for the National Alliance in like uh, the Bullhead, Arizona, Kingman, Arizona area. And the other guy, and I don't say this in my book because uh, it would have caused a whole other book. Like, So the other person that is mentioned is Jack Oliphant. Like, hey, Jack Oliphant wants me to come out and talk to you. And uh, and, and, and this person calls like a bunch of times. Um, now, of course, at this point, they don't know it. it it's just a guy, um, you know, they don't know who Tim McVeigh is. But at that same time that these calls are happening um, by this weird guy saying, Jack Oliphant wants me to talk to you, or I know him and he wants us to hang out. Um, this is at the same time, McVeigh starts giving out pamphlets. Like uh, he's he gives one to Fourier and he's like, Hey, there's this group up in uh, in St. George, Utah, and they have like training, and I want to go to their training class. And he even McVeigh, and this is new to me. I just recently found this out. Like he even tells his father, like, yeah, I'm gonna be going up to to St. George and training with this this paramilitary group. And and by the way, your listeners might not know, uh, Johnny Bangerter was the leader of this militia group. This is who McVeigh is talking about. And he was all over, like you said, like 80s, 90s television as like a figurehead of like yes. racism, basically. Yes. And like, remember I said that after Pat Con, or I mean, I'm sorry, after Ruby Ridge, like Pat Con ratchets up. Yeah. Well, Johnny Bangerter was at Ruby Ridge. Johnny Bangerter is the one who wrote the letter to convince Randy Weaver to surrender. Um, so, if if he hadn't before, which he had, but if he hadn't before, like he certainly gets some attention by watchers at this point after Ruby Ridge. Um, and that actually, at one point while I was writing the book, I found online, and I talk about this in the book, um, a blog by this guy, Jay Dobbins, who was an ATF agent and like he actually talks about how yeah like we we went out and we infiltrated johnny banger's group and 
And he says in his <laughs> blog, he's like, but when we got to the real shot callers, like like the big names, like not these, like stupid, not the Johnny Bayer super, but like these, when we got to the big names, like the real movers and shakers out there, we were told to stand down. Hmm. Like orders came from, he says it was either the CIA or the White House. He's like, but orders came and it squashed our uh, whole infiltration and they told us just leave it alone like um yeah there there's a lot going on there oh oliphant oh i put him in a, put him in his own binder okay so who is jack oliphant Ooh. um well jack maxwell oliphant uh was born in 1924 and uh at the age of 18, he joins the army. And this is uh, during World War II. And he becomes a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne 505 Regiment U.S. Army. And he is trained in unconventional warfare with a specialization in unconventional explosives. Uh, <laughs> he, he claims... Okay, so we're getting in that same territory, kind of Tim McVeigh land land where you're like he made he told a lot of different stories and oddly there's stuff to mm. support it so like one thing that jack oliphant claimed and he claimed it like i for his forever um it wasn't like he claimed it to one person but that he was a founding member of special forces he says he had been recruited into the oss um while in europe in world war ii and uh well, it's not like uh, DCI Colby was also, you know, a paratrooper or anything. It's not like that's extremely plausible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, right. So he's he's a uh, he says he's like um, recruited into the OSS. Um, so when I attempt attempted to obtain Jack Oliphant's military records through FOIA, um, I was informed that all of his records, except for one piece of paper, which was totally useless, was burned in a fire. Now, there were, like, <laughs> fires, apparently, there were fires, but, like, but, um, I just felt, like, that was weird, because another claim that Jack Oliphant makes is, like, at a certain point, he retrieves his files, but so he's so we're we're in World War II now, and he's deployed to the Mediterranean theater of operations. And he also says that he was involved in the North African campaign uh, while attached to the the OSS. And he says that at some point after his involvement in the North African campaign, which would have been after May 1943, I think, but before. I, 44. He says that he was also sent as an American advisor to um, Tito of Yugoslavia. Hmm. And that, like, he, so this is a claim Jack makes, but there's going to be more claims. So Jack Alphant, um, and there are, like, actually, these are records that are available. Like, he, he gets, he, he gets in some kind of an accident, like 
he had claimed it was like a paratrooper accident, like he somehow and over Italy that he claims left him paralyzed and quote paraplegic until 1964. But that's we're gonna. It would be very hard for somebody who's paralyzed to do some of the things I'm going to talk about, but uh, not to be ableist. Like, it's just, we'll see. Yeah, so he apparently suffered some kind of accident in World War II. Mm. And he gets sent to a military hospital. And, uh, but the what his records say, like, is that, and this, that's again, this one page of records. It says he, Alphonse was not injured in the line of duty. Like there's this line and it's like injured in the line of duty or no. And they say no, but Jack Oliphant has always, always did claim that this happened during a parrot jumping out of an airplane, but whatever. So he gets released apparently from the army. Now it's after World War II. Um, so Jack Oliphant claimed that now his association with the OSS, which is now the CIA, continued up until 1967. I foia'd the CIA <laughs> just to see what would happen uh, to get records, and they were denied on grounds of national security. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Jack Oliphant claimed that he had worked as a hitman for the CIA, and he said that he had killed you know he he says he worked as a hitman that he had killed people in in this uh as part of this i guess i'll add so victor marchetti of his book the cult of the cult of intelligence talks about how the term sheep dipping (laughs) refers to the usage of essentially u.s special forces who would get loaned out to the cia to do wet work basically and that was the original usage of the term which is to say they were doing that so again plausible whether or not it's true so oddly enough just as you said that i'm like in my notes here like trying to continue this this forward and like that's just exactly as you said that um i say while I I don't have any information like about his assassinations, what records do suggest is that Jack worked directly for or was hired or sheep dipped to a private detective agency, and in that Ooh. in that capacity, networked with other intelligence agencies. So I had been told about Jack Oliphant's claims of depending who he's talking to, either having information about and or direct involvement in the JFK thing, including <laughs> sometimes his claims that he actually recruited Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. Oh, wow. But with Jack Alphonse, yes, you know, he makes a lot of claims. And, uh, but as we saw in the Stinger missile story, sometimes those claims seem to... Um, align with reality so jack's activities are kind of blurry after world war ii until about 1960 there's traces of him uh but this is still being developed and by the way i do want to shout out to two ladies who um 
I've become acquainted with on Twitter um, that have, and it's funny, we all three have been researching Jack Oliphant and all mm. three of us kind of came to Jack in a different way, but that's Hillary um, or Hillary. I, and also Kay was known as Lawful Spice, but I think <laughs> it's changed the Twitter handle. But, uh, you know, these are kind of in the OKC bombing group of people but uh all three of us are now um pooling our our jack oliphant stuff and like those and those they're awesome but um so i just want to say that because i'm so thankful to have somebody like that knows what i'm talking about so yeah so jack's activities are blurry um until 1960. However, in 1960, he pops up living in New Orleans. And as it turns out, and I was really psyched to find this, but back, I think in 2017, yeah, I found that Jack Oliphant was involved in David Ferry surveillance. Like, he, <laughs> So the quick backstory is that in 1962, David Ferry is facing disciplinary hearings at his place of employment, Eastern Airlines. And in prep, for hearings, disciplinary hearings, um, Eastern Airlines hires New York firm Tolan Investigation, Inc. to investigate Ferry. And in turn, Tolan, and if anyone has information about Tolan, please send it. But uh, in turn, Tolan subcontracts elements of this investigation to uh, something called Southern Research Company, who places Ferry under surveillance. Um, again, for Eastern Airlines. And this is surveillance is going on from 62 to 63. Southern Research, Southern Research Company was operated by, it may have actually been started, although there's conflicting sources on the genealogy of the company, but um, it was operated by a guy named Joseph A. Oster, a former New Orleans police officer, and his partner, ex-FBI agent, A. Harry Roberts. So prior to this, in 1950s, Oster was involved in a newspaper venture with another ex-FBI agent who you might have heard of named Guy Bannister. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize to the JFK heads out there. It's been a while since I picked up my JFK books. Uh, and I, I, I surely am again. But um, there's... And then Oster had a controlling interest in and was the secretary treasurer of Bannister's New Orleans detective agency, Guy Bannister Associates. So basically like a associate of Guy Bannister. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And a business partner, in fact. Yeah. Like they, they work together. Uh, much of Bannister's work, as everyone probably knows, involves penetrating pro-Castro groups and supplying arms and training to anti-Castro Cubans notably famed Alpha 66. Of course, Bannister is also reportedly closely associated with CIA contract agent David Ferry, as well as Oswald in 1962 and prior. In the late 1950s, Oster left Bannister's outfit to start his own company, Southern Research Company. According to Oster, this was because Bannister was getting too involved in controversial political causes, which was hurting their business. But <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what Oster claimed. 
Oster still maintained a working relationship with Bannister for, for many years after. So that's sketchy. But Southern Research Company investigative reports, including reference to one found in an obscure endnote of the Warren Commission report, states that Jack Oliphant, working for Southern Research Company, had been surveilling none other than David Ferry on at least two occasions. <laughs> On one of these occasions, occurring November 23rd, 1962, almost a year, a day shy of a year before the JFK assassination, Oliphant reported how from 7.30 that evening until 2 a.m. the next morning, he and his partner, whose name is Charles Branton, watched a slew of young boys go in and out of David Ferry's apartment. Um, Branton, by the way, uh, was in the Army and was part of Merrill's Marauders, apparently one of the first guerrilla type units. So that, so that also good, like is um, like Jack Oliphant, you know, he has um, real trading in guerrilla um, methods, tactics, warfare. Interestingly, on the night of JFK's assassination, Oster himself accompanied investigators from the New Orleans DA office to Ferry's house to, to interview him. Peter Dell Scott has noted that Oster's later business partner, another former FBI agent, Milton Knack, um, wrote in 1963 a, quote, pre-assassination report on Lee Harvey Oswald based on interviews with Oswald, based on an interview which Oswald himself requested. And Knack would later be, quote, disciplined for his handling of the file of Lee Harvey Oswald. More <laughs> on Oster in a minute. And so, like, looking at this, um, at that point, just to contextualize it, 1962, David Ferry's involved in a disciplinary hearing um, by Eastern Airlines, who he works for, and he's and the uh, and in preparation for that, Eastern Airlines hires a firm called Tolan Investigations to investigate Ferry, and in turn, Tolan subcontracts that out to Southern Research Company, uh, who then with the help of Jack Oliphant, placed David Ferry under surveillance. And so, like, in this little uh, synopsis of a report, it says that Oliphant outlined how from 7.30 p.m. until 2 a.m. the next morning, he and the guy he was with, a guy named Branton, watched a slew of young boys go in and out of Ferry's apartment. Yeah, so... Like Jack Oliphant until his dying day would like tell people like he had he would never come out he never said this like he never said oh and by the way I watched David Ferry but he would like claim that he had knowledge of some of the goings on in the JFK deal. It's just like remarkable that they interacted at all. That's so wild. Holy shit. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And like so. Jack Oliphant makes a lot of claims, but sometimes there's base you can find basis for these claims. Um, and that's one of them. And that's like, I guess that was like a huge whoa moment to me. And like, okay, can I just say David Ferry was probably murdered 
Like, Jack Oliphant <laughs> very well could have been the guy who murdered him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's speculation on my part, obviously. But, like, uh, could have been. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how any uh, assassins were uh, deployed out there to, like, deal with fairy, you know, so, but he would be, a mm -hmm. Oliphant would, could be a candidate, you know, for this. So, uh, he's already watching him. Here, CIA denies my request for info about Oliphant. Uh, like, <laughs> this is a quote The CIA can neither confirm nor deny the existence or non existence of record responsive to your request. The fact of the existence or non existence of requested records is currently improperly classified and is intelligence sources and methods information that is protected from disclosure by various FOIA assumptions. So, uh, exemptions, one of which is national security on grounds of national security. Um, so, hey, check it out. In 1963, um, okay, so wait, don't check it out just yet. So in 1963, obviously JFK is assassinated. Jack Oliphant shows up, the next time he shows up is in 1964 in Boca Raton, Florida, <laughs> leading a donkey at the head of a parade. Um, and he's like giving donkey rides to children. I, 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 I no, I don't know. Because I'm like, I am trying to trace like all gaps and like. So the next time he shows up after that whole, I'm gonna watch David Ferry thing. Is that like in a newspaper or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Ripping reporting. <laughs> yeah, it is, and I can I can give you the exact like citation on that, but not the second because right now all i have is these notes mm -hmm. but yeah yeah so that's that so jack claims that sometime before 1966 he's ordained as a minister um no by the missouri side nod or lutheran church and he says like he wasn't really truly into it but he like goes through the motions of getting ordained for some reason Wendy, let me ask you, okay, is that a real church or is that one of these spooky <laughs> wandering bishop churches? That one, okay, those do come in really soon here. Oh, geez. That one seems seems to be real. And I, I got to say, like, I'm not that familiar with um, Lutherans or that particular. Yeah. I don't know one, but... um. He's going to get ordained in, in some other thing soon here. No, no. <laughs> so Jack, like later in life, he says like, he <laughs> he tells a story. And by the way, he's leading a donkey in a parade at the time he's supposed to be a paraplegic, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so Jack tells a story later. He's like, I was driving down the road in my, in my car and god told me to get out and walk and and as soon as i listened to god i was healed and all of a sudden i could walk again and i took off my braces and i started walking and i, I was like forrest got that and i walked and walked it's a miracle yeah hallelujah so there's a couple more mentions of jack oliphant like he's arrested in 1966 and fingerprinted in west palm beach um but there's no in the records like there's no a charge of 
right off me exit, meaning a court order restraining a person from leaving the jurisdiction. Like, so, but I don't, there's no further information on that. So Jack, hold on one second here. So, so Jack says like, yeah, he used to be evil and he had this like religious um, experience, I guess, in his car. And uh, he also claims he was a millionaire at one point. <laughs> but in the late 1960s, I'm, I'm jumping forward now. And, and again, this is all in my second book, but I don't know when that's going to come out. So I'm going to tell you guys now. Um, he moves to a large ranch in South Florida and he meets like someone he, he had been married, and, but at this point he was divorced and he meets this woman and they get married. And uh, he's fingerprinted again for the charges listed as W slash slash C-H-K-M-I-S-D. I have no idea what that means, but like he's he's uh, there is record of him at this time. So now here's this is interesting. Jack Oliphant and I just recently talked to like like two weeks ago on um, someone that um, got heavily involved in jack alpha and he was like yeah i was like did jack ever say anything weird like i didn't tell you any weird stories he's like well yeah he he claimed like he claimed he had information about the whole hoffa thing so so like <laughs> as it turns out so another claim that jack makes and that he makes a lot uh this is found in at least one fbi document but also i've been told by two people um, one very recently that Jack claims he had knowledge of the Hoffa deal and that he made this claim repetitively throughout the later 70s and early and, and up until the early 1990s. And uh, Lawful Spice found this Hoffex memo where Alphon is actually mentioned, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. So it, it gets rather complicated, but just briefly, <laughs> Southern Research Company, whom Joseph A. Oster was vice president of and who retained the services of Oliphant for David Ferry surveillance, derived a large portion of their income from investigations on behalf of management and labor relation matters. So, mm. uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess that's shorthand for what, union busting? Is it... <laughs> uh, yeah, and some the intersection of the mafia therein up too, I'm sure. Yeah, yes, yes. That's it. Um without going too deep on the issue, um, I cause I need to refresh my memory on both the details of deep assassination stuff, but also I need to get a better handle on the tangled web of um how that all fits into the Hoffa stuff. But in the late 1960s, Southern Research Company was involved in Hoffa's legal issues and various related investigations of Hoffa and Hoffa's associates. The Labor Management Commission of Inquiry uh, was established in July 1967 by special session of the Louisiana legislature. The function of the commission would be to investigate and make findings of fact relative to possible criminal violations in the labor management field, particular, or particularly problems of labor strife in the Baton Rouge area. 
after the first chief counsel of the commission resigned, he was replaced with A. Harry Roberts, who, along with Oster, was part owner of Southern Research Associates. <laughs> I wish I had a visual I could like post to help <laughs> people with this. But anyways, um, I might be understanding this wrong, but one of the main functions of Southern Research Company in that commission, according to some sources, involves running interference for or covering up serious allegations by a Louisiana Teamster official about Hoffa's involvement in gun running to Cuba or da, 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 the anti-Castro cause. <laughs> Peter Dell Scott says Oster was, quote, part of an extensive effort to prevent Hoffa from going to jail by harassing Robert Kennedy's chief witness against Hoffa. Hmm. So, so wait, so, okay. So they are basically assisting hoffa basically interesting yes right exactly yes that's a quick way yeah that's the better way to exactly oh. and but they're doing it in a with the cover of like an official like they're supposed to be officially investigating problems but the real function and, and this is coming from now a, a few sources including dell scott um is right. Their whole thing is like they're just there to run interference for Hoffa and make sure he doesn't, yeah, exactly get prosecuted. Interesting. Because, like, I've delved into the Hoffa thing a number of times, and every time it's like too hard for me. But, like, yeah, it's okay. so interesting. Like, basically, like different factions of, I guess you could call the deep state or something. Like, not even, I don't know if that's the right term, but like the Kennedy Department of Justice versus several pe factions that were happy with what Hoffa was doing. Like, interesting. Yeah. I I'm glad you said that though, because I too feel, I start to feel really stupid when I get, try to get into Hoffa. It's like I need to go to an island and all, all by myself. It's just so sprawling. Actually, I, I did want to ask just because I know my listeners are always interested. And I don't recall if you actually quote this or not. I'm trying to recall. But, like, did you ever read the uh, James Elroy Underworld USA trilogy? Uh, I read the first one on my American tabloid. Mm -hmm. I love that book. Yeah. I was in the process. This is funny. I was in the process of reading the second one. Like, I had always meant to. I started to read it about three four weeks ago but now i'm reading the colony instead like I'll, I'll just have to get back to it and the prose is a little bit annoying in the in the second one to me yeah whereas i liked american tabloids flow sometimes elroy likes to get a little too crazy with it but uh no i mean just because like that's one of my i mean that was one of my first introductions to the hoffa thing right and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just comes to mind. And that's actually why I picked up the second book. Mm -hmm. Like, is I'm like, well, maybe I'll understand it if it's like put this way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, at least have like a, a visual on it um in my head. Yeah. I loved American Cowboy though. Oh, I, yeah. I definitely need to read that again. I didn't read it till after Aberration was published. And I believe I only read it when I first start, like, was trying to figure out the Hoffa stuff. 
But then, like you said, you know, it just becomes like, what? <laughs> I'll circle back someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so by the way, also Peter Dale Scott, <laughs> in, in his various writing, has shown how all of this, like the JFK and Hoffa stuff and Oster specifically, was intertwined with James Earl Ray and the MLK assassination. I'm not even going to get into that, but interesting interesting it's like all like tangled yeah so this is oster so scott says oster was much closer to the intelligence mob realm like the that connection um the intelligence agencies and mob connections um then has been acknowledged and he also points out how the House Select Committee on Assassinations chose to ignore relevant evidence pertaining to James Earl Ray, I believe like Hoffa, evidence about gun running, <laughs> if I'm remembering right, and instead relied on conflicting testimony from who Peter L. Scott calls, quote, the dubious private eye, Joseph Oster. Mm. So, yeah. So really recently very recently within the past like month i was talking to a former member of jack oliphant's church who was like there in the florida incarnation and he's talking about some of the dissension that began to happen among the congregation before jack moves his church to arizona and some of that had a the dissension had to do with jack's financial problems and how jack wanted to handle it because apparently what this guy told me and and this guy was sincere what he said was that jack wanted to borrow money from some shady people like in so many words that jack was mobbed up so Um, make of that what you will i I guess i gotta get half a pill in 1969 jack oliphant then obtains other claims that he was ordained by a few different places, including Full Gospel Businessmen's <laughs> Fellowship and Turn. No, yeah, no, yeah. No. I knew you were gonna love that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, by the way, when I told you I was like in their Adirondacks listening to your show, like I was listening to the, your show about that. <laughs> Hot damn! So we don't really know if he actually ever was ordained in anything at all. That hasn't been verified and actually one member of his church has said like i don't know if he was ordained by anyone he might have just said that but he did choose a couple interesting names one of which was full gospel businessman which is interesting but uh along the way in addition to the missouri side nod lutheran church and full gospel businessmen's fellowship international james would or jack would claim he had been ordained by Ranch Challenge, Hallelujah People, Inc., and World Ministry Fellowship. World Ministry Fellowship is an international organization of Pentecostal ministers founded in Shreveport, Louisiana in the summer of 1963, um, which, by the way, is like around this time that Oliphant's out there surveilling David Ferry. Mm. Um, So I mean, just the time frame is an interesting match, but just like Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, World Ministry is part of the later Rain Movement, which itself goes back to 
a guy you've you've covered um and covered amazingly Branham (laughs) (laughs) um who's going to pop up in the story again in a little bit but they um they believed in staving off the corrupting influence of the devil through baptism of the holy spirit which is a charismatic process evidenced in faith healing and and um, speaking in tongues world ministry has some relationship to world vision Mm. which i'm still fleshing out but world vision you might recognize because of their its connection to john hingley jr and senior and mark david chapman (laughs) there so okay so like oliphant many of those ordained by world ministry fellowship went on to start their own holy rolling congregations throughout the country and now has affiliates throughout the world, including Ghana, Nigeria, Singapore, India, Mexico, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And research is ongoing. So mm, that's that. Excellent. And so basically there is a relationship, but it's not super clear what that relationship is between the... Yeah. Okay. Like I found um, World Vision stuff referencing world ministry or vice versa, they're affiliated, but I I have not full fleshed it out. It's just there is an affiliation, and I don't know um, the inner workings of that yet. Yeah. Because, like, World Vision was, like, it was, like, not necessarily, like, a normal congregate. Like, it wasn't, like, a church in the U.S., right? Didn't they do a lot of, like, refugee camp work and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And then, like, world ministry may have been, like, I don't know for sure, but either an affiliate or an arm, like a domestic, though, but domestic, although world ministry also goes on to do international stuff. Mm-hmm. And they are, though, they definitely are part of the later rain movement, like that's mm-hmm. in, in literature, so... Which I'm like, I didn't even know what later rain was until you know your show. So I'll be honest, I didn't know until Marcus told me. <laughs> so it's new yeah. to me. I'm very interested though. Um, I never Jesus, sorry, but I never wanted to like get into deep theology issues, but like you know, this is where I find myself. No, we have to. <laughs> it's kinda like when I was constantly having to read yeah. all that like magician horseshit it's like i don't want to do this (laughs) yeah but i have to 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 understand right Mm -hmm. it becomes more interesting at least like it wouldn't have been interesting without a reason to me you know um i just oh it says this is a note that i just wanted to tell you this doesn't you don't even have to put this in but i wanted to um tell you that um i was in one section that we're not redoing, I was talking about Jack Oliphant starting Hallelujah houses all through the, or that there's not Jack Oliphant, but that there's various Hallelujah places called Hallelujah houses throughout the country mm-hmm. that seem to be operating kind of independently of Oliphant's Hallelujah house. However, one of the more mysterious like ministries Jack has is in Linton, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never been able to find paper on it. It's but like two of his 
congregants are living out there. So that's like, I just, because you have a thing about Indiana, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, Jack's like, whatever he's doing in Indiana is a lot more mysterious than like some of his other um, more forward facing surface stuff. Yeah, like Indiana is just chock full of like clan and Christian identity churches or what would become, you know, like, and I don't really know. Well, now I know a little bit more of why, but like, it's just like really freaking weird. Um, The last few weeks or however long I said, I got you tipped me off the brand. I can never say his name. Brand ham. I, I like, I spell it consistently different. Like, I don't know what's going on there, but, but, uh, I've been like a kind of like a vacuum cleaner, just sucking up like anything I can find and haven't even had time to read through it all yet. But I can certainly send you, you know, for your files when you do pick it up again. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I still need to read that dang automated car thing, but it would be very funny to oh, do yeah. like an episode where I compare that to Tesla or something. <laughs> yeah. And also remember Cal- the mm-hmm. Calspan, like when you do do that, remember that Calspan had a thing about automated cars as well. Oh, or, like yeah. actually ran test trials in Buffalo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I don't understand the stuff really about the, the auto industry, but but the auto industry was, I think, as you pointed out, like, um, or as you emphasized, like, also um, central in some of the Caliban stuff. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not saying, like, every car is a CIA or something. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. But And also, I it's been on my list for a long time to go, like, really deep into all of these churches which is why i was like tickled like when you're talking about full gospel business and fellowship international mm-hmm. i don't know you want to say something about them or like yeah so okay going mostly off of memory uh they sure seem to be just a i'd have to pull up my notes but like essentially astroturfed by as best I can figure out partially by like auto companies, auto manufacturers. And then also a guy named Demo Shikarian, who is (laughs) Kim Kardashian's grandfather (laughs) uh, was involved in the group. And like, they just pushed a certain type of evangelical Pentecostalism that like, eventually kind of morphed into like prosperity gospel slash some crossover with like mega churches and like goes without saying like virulent anti-communism and so forth like very interesting stuff yeah that that is because you know like one of the things we've talked about um in earlier conversations we've had was like that gladio kind of stuff um mm-hmm. oh by oh so so world ministry fellowship like they uh had a lot of missions to places including africa asia latin america mexico guatemala el salvador so just like you know 
they're weird uh or you know mm-hmm. so at that point so jack oliphant has an amazing um conversion and a revelation that he is to do the lord's work and so him and his well, now wife Margot, they open a riding school for children in boone creek in, in florida and when i i talked to i did talk to Margot. she died now um, but and the other people I've talked to that have been involved with Jack Oliphant at this stage, um, it like this riding school was supposed to help children with problems, I guess by letting them ride horses or you know just giving them something to do. But apparently, like they were also kind of indoctrinating children or you know give, give, preaching or whatever. But the, all of a sudden, like a lot of parents seem to have a problem. I'm not sure what exactly they were doing with these kids, but like all the parents mm. started coming out and being like, oh, our kids can't go here anymore. And this is, by the way, down south and at a time when like, and I, I looked like all the back pages of all the newspapers were like filled with ads for church and filled with Bible verses like in the newspapers. So whatever was happening here, it was like pushing beyond the bounds of like even like very religious people. Um, and this was out of something was wrong and parents didn't want their kids uh, going here. In fact, according to Jack Oliphant, one parent said that they'd beat their daughter to death if they continued to talk about Jesus and the, and the church. So, so that's just weird. So, um, so then the Oliphants, him and his wife, Jack and his wife, be, restrict their services to only allow 18-year-olds. And, like, at that point, like, a lot of young hippie types came to them, started flocking to them. Um, and Wait, wait let, me, let me ask yeah, you, yeah. sorry. So it's like the kids were getting too converted to Christianity? They were running the school or like or kind of like day camp where they rode horses and mm-hmm. at, at some point the parents start pulling their kids out because yeah they were becoming too uh, filled with the, the lord or i you know i just don't know why but like something had to happen for parents to be like oh hell no i'm not you can't go that's I so don't know what it was. Weird and interesting. Yeah. And the people that I know, like they kind of met Jack just around this time. They, as like young adults, they weren't these little. But this is not the first time, or I'm sorry, this is not the last time that that Jack would try to um, <laughs> have a group of children um, to teach. Yeah, and not the last time that uh, people would have a big problem with it either. So. Apparently, like, according to the Oliphants, like, that's when they decided, like, okay, only young adult, only, like, over 18 people can be involved in our church. Uh, so I, I've i never heard of that um, happening in a church. Yeah, that's so weird. I mean, the not, again, this is, like, tough because there's, you know, I don't, I haven't seen all the documents, but, again, it kind of reminds me of, Oh, I don't know when the CIA was studying trance states induced by Pentecostal churches, right? Yeah, and when yeah, you had said that uh, that was highly interesting. Interesting to me. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know if that's got legs in this case, but it's what I think of. It does. It will. It, it, yeah, no, no, no. It will have legs. <laughs> Whether Jack's worked or not, I don't know. But, um... <laughs>
So like all these hippies, like now, because we're talking about 19, we're talking about, you know, the late night, the, I'm sorry, the late sixties. So like Jesus freaks. Exactly. You're right. Good. Thank you. I was going to like, I have this whole diatribe about Jesus freaks and the <laughs> Jesus freaks movement. And uh, one more organized part of these uh, um in 1967, like these like hippie reform hangouts called Hallelujah Houses had sprung up um, throughout the country. And this is like part of the Jesus Freak movement. Um, and these are happening like in Dallas, in New Mexico, Wisconsin, all over the place. And, and Jack Oliphant becomes, um, becomes ordained by them however you can be i like i don't know their ordination process but he gets involved in this hallelujah house movement i want to say though that i do believe that the hallelujah house was an off shoot of that world ministry mm. you know uh, there's a funny in the summer of 1967 at one of the hallelujah houses in seattle washington this this one preacher gives a presentation to members of the Lewis County Mental Health and Mental Retardation Association. And the title of the presentation is Young People in in Drugs. And like he tells reporters that um problems with drugs start early in life, sometimes as early as six, usually with sniffing glue. <laughs> And but like the Hallelujah House can help you if you have a problem with drugs, come to the Hallelujah House. And like that, that may may very well like fine. I don't know. Hmm. So Hallelujah Houses were like were spreading like fire, anyways. And uh, local governments were sending kind of their wayward people that they didn't have room to house. In, in facilities to these hallelujah houses like they're Ooh. yeah this is like touching on various things that i've been looking at very interesting yeah and, and i oh i wish wish i could interview you but like it's kind of <laughs> like jim jones stuff right yeah yeah that's exactly it's like yeah yeah, yeah that's <laughs> I'm trying not to just run away with that, but yeah. No, please do, because like I feel like I've been talking a lot. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Basically, I did a couple episodes with my buddy Marcus, which these episodes are about to come out, and he was looking at uh, Jim Jones, uh, particularly. I mean, in a couple capacities, but. Uh, Basically, they deregulated a lot of the mental health institutions in the 80s. And, you know, Reagan budget cuts were part of it. And immediately stepping into that void, well, I guess it wasn't all Reagan, but whatever. Um, what, immediately stepping into this void were various churches and or cults, which started taking over these different services and providing them at lower cost because half the members were like not being paid because they're in cults. And then it's like all kinds of like government fraud, basically getting, you know, 
funds rather than like a proper licensed psychiatric institute. It weaves in and out with like synanon type stuff. Just really interesting. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and this is why exactly like I, I have like all this chunk of manuscript, but those are things like I just need to mm. need to do a little more on because this is really relevant um, to Jack, uh, to this story uh, that I'm writing here and also just interesting generally, but uh, interesting. Jack and Margo open up um, a church called the Hallelujah People. This is an offshoot of these Hallelujah houses. Um, and and Jack becomes the unpaid administrator here. So he begins also at the same time something called Camp Ranch Challenge Hallelujah House in Naples, Florida. And by the way, that's connected to David Wilkerson's Teen Challenge group the teen challenge organization and a group that splintered off from them by the way is the children of god yeah 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 they fucked me like when i think like oh i had some time of just like i was like just looking intensely at the children of god and that's some really disturbing stuff right there but you know, in the genealogy of these things, like they're all these are related. Like what Jack his organization is is in some way related, although it operates mm. on the surface very autonomously. So, so like the people. So like now, all of a sudden, he's got um, the city of Naples just sending him people, and all these hippies like just kind of showing up and. Um, and and so Jack or Jack Oliphant runs a pretty tight ship. Like it's a very regimented life. You you could stay there and you could stay there for free, but you know, your day consists of waking up at 5 30 a.m. in the morning, a full day of work out, you know, a full day of work because they were operating like this um citrus growth business. And so like, and I've talked to people that worked. Like we're in the church at this time in Jack Oliphant's church, and like, like they didn't get paychecks. Like, they didn't. They weren't even given clothes. <laughs> this guy recently told me they had to pray in the clothes. Like, if they needed boots, <laughs> they would all get together and pray it in. And like, somehow boots wanted to show up if they needed them, but like they had to pray it in. Like, the, they weren't being bought. They never. <laughs> yeah, they prayed it in. Um, and it's so funny how like the core of any of these types of groups which are like you know basically cults is unpaid labor it's exploitation basically yeah oh and by the way we were talking about more he at one point in the 80s attempts to ha have his own kind of cult <laughs> which is also unpaid labor but he's just not as good a at it as jack oliphant like it doesn't get too far um he didn't have you know someone <laughs> yeah he got that i don't know that was just a weird small like little um, thing in in roger moore's life it, but but it was the same deal of like he just wants people to do work for him for free jack oliphant however is running like a much larger thing like they had sometimes up to 200 people doing work at this organization but like so they began to run afoul of the law in tampa 
uh, like Johnny Law, and they get evicted because they get end up getting. Well, first of all, they're running afoul of the law because they'll they march around the property all night, very militaristically praying and chanting. And so like the neighbors start to start to have a problem. The Department of Welfare comes in because of all the ruckus that they're causing <laughs> in Tampa. Um, and then uh, yeah, and so finally they get evicted. And, and this is like this huge court case of or it's like reported a lot in their in their local news but like basically the landlord was like there was human waste all over the warehouse first of all they're housing like a couple hundred people in a warehouse that could um legally maybe handle about 30 people but they're not even supposed to be living there to begin with but um the landlord says there's human waste all over the place um and there's like all, all other kinds of gross problems in there. So fine. So Jack Oliphant, at first they they like they try to fight it, but they're they're like, okay. And then they move. Um, oh, I'm sorry, they were in Naples. And so then they move the church over to Tampa. And it's just kind of like the same, it's just a continuation. They're 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 running what's called in the papers a religious commune which is like a lot of people live there and work for Jack. Um, there's one story like this, one of the members, and actually I'm hopefully going to be talking to another person involved in this incident, but like a couple of the members of the church, and these are like young people, they get in a motorcycle accident and, and uh, seriously injured. And the doctors tell one of them, like he has a bone protruding from his leg and he's like look if I don't take care of this you could get gangrene or worse another of the person people involved in this accident had broken his spine in four places but Jack taught that you're not you know they they were against going to the doctor and they were not supposed to receive medical attention and so both of these young guys declined medical attention because because that's not what God wants me to do. They not even aspirin or insulin. So those two, they get released from the hospital. Um, and one of them is confined to a pallet, and they have to like carry him on this pallet to services in the morning and at night. And the other one does develop gangrene. Um, and so like, but this is under Jack Oliphant's direction. And he's kind of pushing these kids like like as far as they can go and interesting because like you know i pretty much only knew about the end state of oliphant right i mean i didn't know that like yeah he was in special forces and i didn't know that he ran a freaking religious cult that's so interesting yeah that's why i i kept messaging like hey look at this thing about this group it, it, yeah because I guess how could yeah. you know? Because I didn't explain it, but yeah, yeah. Jack Oliphant. So in the beginning, though, it, it, it's it's not racial, and actually, we're we probably, <laughs> it's not racial because like the people yeah. I talk to in the group are like, oh yeah, no, Jack was Jack didn't have like a racial, um, I guess, message at that time, and like we, everyone and anyone was allowed into into Hallelujah House, into this church, and in fact, that was one thing that Jack bragged about was how inclusive they were, 
this would change later. I love the phrase, in the beginning, it wasn't <laughs> racial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How often that comes up. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, one of the things I've recently been trying to do is, like, there's this, like, about two to three year gap in time when it does become racial. At that point, mm-hmm. everyone, like, a lot of people had abandoned him. And, like, in this two to three year period, it does become that. And that's one of the things I've been recently, like, really trying to get to. Like, and that's why when you told me about that, Mercer, is it Mercer? Yeah, I think Leo Mercer, I think. Yeah. And I just keep trying and trying to, like, find, even if I, can't find the connection between Mercer and Oliphant, um, Mercer and some of the other Christian identity bigger names that I know for a fact Jack Oliphant was like tight with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when you told me that, like it, it sent me on a on a whole like because that, that's important. Like how like how how does it happen? But but that's that comes later. So. So like the Jack Alva ends up telling like a lot of weird stories because he his at this point and when they're in Florida they attract a lot of attention in the media like they're written up a lot in the in the local newspapers in Florida at this time and like one there's one like they claim that someone tried to firebomb their house um they they claim to have been beaten up by gangs and this was this wouldn't be the last time that satan's spawn were like out to get them that's my words uh, okay i was like is that a biker gang <laughs> no no like uh, in their view as they tell it is like satan's own minions are trying to get us i don't even know if hmm. half of these things they're telling in the paper are true or not it's just interesting that they're telling them at all um i yeah. here's the thing one of the strangest of the hallelujah house snafus uh, was an altercation with what church members called a witchcraft group quote unquote witchcraft <laughs> group who lived across the street and according to the Hallelujah people, and this is what they told the newspapers, the witches had killed one of their own by pumping them full of LSD and strychnine and left the body lifeless on Hallelujah House's front porch. But thankfully, through the power of prayer, he survived. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like they revived, like, yeah, so the witchcraft group tried to kill their own guy or and then left him on jack's porch and thankfully jack and his followers prayed him back to life (laughs) and later when they're out in the desert he'll also claim like that they are able to bring the dead back to life which is just creepy as hell yeah wait so is that in tampa that they were dueling with yeah yeah apparently like according to that yeah this is in tampa interesting now what i was told recently by someone that was also i've talked to a bunch of the people in tampa with them but like they're like oh the neighbors just didn't like us because you know we prayed really loudly and had revival meetings like no one has ever said anything about a coven of witches across the street like (laughs) it's just this really strange story yeah while no mention 
because well because jack claims that they the witch the witchcraft group puts a body on his doorstep and that through um you know the lord or whatever he is able to revive this guy from the dead so i wanted to add while no mention has um, been made of what happened to the modern day Lazarus <laughs> and the veracity of Jack's tale is unknown um, this yarn might be spun from actual local news at the same time 1973 uh, May 1973 torture and ritualistic murder of a 17 year old boy at the hands of a quote devil's coven and satanic cult and that's what the news articles call him who themselves who called themselves, quote, the devil's children hmm. and consisted of six young beach transients living uh, much like their godly counterparts, commune style. I, I don't know if that's significant, but like, I, it was just weird that there's this ritualistic murder that was happening right at the same time that Jack saying a dead body is being put on his doorstep. Interesting. I don't know much more about this devil's children. Um, but So they're operating this venture in Tampa called Hallelujah Fruit. Uh, and it's like a citrus picking organization. But then they kind of, things get a little hairy because they're not paying their taxes on, on the, uh, on the venture and <laughs> the key to a good cult is a unpaid labor <laughs> b don't pay taxes <laughs> yeah yeah we, you should like write up a little pamphlet like hey want to yeah. make a cult <laughs> this is what oh, I Lord. <laughs> uh, do these things and yeah don't pay your taxes um they end up owing all those back taxes and basically like the, the law keeps coming down on them for one thing after another and so jack decides um we're out of here and so one person i talked to that had this was a city councilman that that was involved with them in in tampa at this time and now we're we're like i skipped ahead we're like in 1976 what one person told me was that like some this is they said he had quite a following before he left Florida. After a while, something happened. All of a sudden, their houses were empty. Everything was gone. Not even a goodbye. I didn't even know that they left. I just went by one day to see them, and they were all gone. They closed up shop, abandoned everything, and went out to Arizona. Hmm. So they just kind of like pick up and take off. So there is sort of a continuity between that, you know, the Tampa cult and the Arizona group. Yeah. So here, so what happened is like at that time when they split, some people stayed in Tampa and those people, like some people stayed in Florida and those people were already starting to have a bit of an issue as like how things were running. At, but then a good chunk of them, about 50 of them, mostly young guys, men, from Tampa went out to the desert with Jack Oliphant. At this point, the number, and this is coming from people that went with him and other reports, but it's like pretty consistently about 50 people he leads in this exodus out to out to Arizona. Interesting. From Jesus freak to, I don't know, race freak or something. Not even races yet. Yeah, yeah. It's not races yet, but it will. It will become that, but... uh. Yeah, right. 
they, they started off as Jesus freaks and now it's like 1976. So like that whole scene is probably dying out and, and like, um, they, they kind of become something else, but there's definitely a difference in what they look like in Florida. Cause even the people I've talked to in Florida will be like, well, yeah, you know, I was a troubled youth and like as weird as Jack was like, you know, I got my life together. Now there's complaints about them, but most of them that I've talked to, at least from the Florida end that didn't go out to the desert, like, you know, they seem like uh, it was weird and it was harsh, but they don't regret it. But the people that go out to the desert, like some of them will regret it. Mm, yeah. So Jack, so it's 1976, Jack's purchased 200 thousand shares of an abandoned platinum mine in a in a mining community called octave arizona um worth about a hundred thousand dollars and this property like had been a a literal gold mine and had 25 miles of underground tunnels in it (laughs) okay we're talking tunnels yeah yeah we now we're in tunnels yeah I mean, how are you going to have a a good story without underground tunnels? (laughs) I didn't know this, like, you know, but I couldn't make a better, yeah, I couldn't make a better story, like, with some of these elements. Yeah, if you were to write it, it would sound like too much. Yeah. Instead, it's like, (laughs) just little, like, oh, found this. Oh, my God, tunnels. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I can't write fiction, but I don't even need to because of this kind of stuff. So so what they planned to do, and this is what a former member said, was they were going to rebuild the this property and actually the entire town surrounding it, which is kind of a ghost town, into a Christian tourist attraction site. This was like at least what Jack told them they were going to be doing. Um, like, I can't <laughs> tell you how many small-scale financial frauds are perpetuated because some church tries to build a Christian theme park. (laughs) Oh, shoot, really? That's so funny. Yeah, no, that's like almost like a subset of, like, fraud. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that fits. That, 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 that tracks. So, yeah, yeah, I, that's really interesting the whole christian tourist resort thing and later i'll jump ahead just one second when it does become racial his next venture in arizona is to try to create a christian identity tourist attraction Mm. like he loves this idea interesting but as soon as they get to octave arizona on this mine they, they come into conflict because Apparently what had happened was that Jack had been scammed and double sold. So there's like other people on this property like, no, I own this and we own this. So like that gets really crazy because at first I think they try to work like kind of live amongst each other. But but Jack's plan to make this holy ghost town is a little bit is stymied a little bit. Oh, is that what he's calling it? That's pretty funny, actually. He actually tells the paper at one point, <laughs> it will become a holy ghost town. And, uh-huh. I mean, that's 
that's funny for what it's worth <laughs> yeah yeah it's a nice saying like in fact that's like the i think even the subtitle of that part of it is the holy ghost town because it is mm -hmm. pretty, it's a catchy one um jack would sometimes say some funny things like some, some clever things yeah so so these guys are armed they were not as far as i've ever heard armed in florida but now they're all carrying guns but like they end up having shootouts with these people that also own the property the co the other owners of the property holy cow what were they were they like mining interests or like yeah what, what were they into they were there for mining right they weren't trying to build a, a thing <laughs> yeah no they were there specifically for mining and and they there's a lot of conflict and it escalates back and forth and um at some like there's shootouts and then there's one shootout and during this shootout jack oliphant accidentally shoots off his own arm so now jack oliphant only has one arm <laughs> and like the uh as with everything like there's weird stories about jack's what happened with jack's arm but um jack ends up <laughs> jack's pretty tough guy he he does he does not take pain medication for this he uh he tells like they told him they could operate and jack's like just cut the damn thing off <laughs> like he and he didn't have anesthesia so there is that so that like while he's making these poor like young guys not <laughs> get medical attention at least like jack isn't secretly going to the doctor he he's pretty tough okay so he so he's at least appears to genuinely be something of like a religious nut himself um <laughs> he appeared it would appear that way <laughs> The people that were with him now, like at this point in Octave, Arizona, like they might, they will have said things like, you know, something wasn't right about Jack and you never really could, you never knew if he was sincere. So, but they like, it didn't matter because I was with the congregation and we had a bigger mission and like, you know, we were doing the Lord's work, but like some of them at least have expressed doubt about the sincerity of Jack's, um, dedication to sparkle motion to, to the lord yeah mm, interesting i guess i can't say what if he if he if he was a true believer he posed as such at least that was like his outward posture oh definitely did yeah like and that was his okay. whole persona like i'm the reverend jack oliphants yeah like that was totally mm. his his posture I don't know what was in his heart, but um, but people that were close to him have like expressed, you know, we just weren't sure his sincerity. But what he did like to do was kind of command and control this whole these communities he would set up. Hmm. So so okay, so because of the shootouts and all the problems with the other people. <laughs> in that mine they moved to wickenburg arizona um and that's like 28 miles south of the octave property and there he starts running a training camp in the desert and this is now we're in 1977 so sometime between that year and 1982 is when 
he had claimed he was training Mujahideen in the desert. And so there, yeah, there's online posts that actually some of the Twitter people are, have just been like talking about now that this was like in the manuscript, but like one of them makes a, a really strange claim. And he says the ranch in Arizona was a violent cult. I was there. So, so now this is my voice again, but like something had just gone horribly awry. If Jack ever had a vision of like the Lord, like something now has like gotten real weird even weirder than it already was, everything I've already told you. Um, it's at that point, this is August 19, 1977, FBI memo subtext HOFX, an anonymous source calls the FBI from Congress Junction, Arizona, and says he's very upset with the way that Jack, Jack Oliphant, leader of the Hallelujah Bunch, he calls them, or Hallelujah Boys, was treating people. He says he knows the FBI can't do anything about it, but I think you'd be interested to know that he, um, the hallelujah, like the Jack Oliphant basically frequently mentions the name Jimmy Hoffa and suggests <laughs> that he was either acquainted with or has information about Hoffa's disappearance. And I cannot pretend to know the ins and outs of the Hoffa situation, but just like that Warren Commission report, Jack Oliphant does pop up in. In, in sources yeah and now we're in a james elroy novel yeah honestly <laughs> that's interesting because of course i can't speak at great length about hoffa either but he seems to come up in so many different things it's like very interesting stuff yeah and, and that one is like that one is is new to me like uh i have not fleshed out the hoffa stuff I don't even know, like, that's going to take a lot of work to, like, get myself up to speed on the Hoffa situation. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm talking about it, so I expect, like, people are going to pick up and, um, and like, dig into this. And I, I can't wait to see. So the, so now, okay, so that's, like, right at that time when this memo, this, like, FBI memo is saying, like, oh, yeah, we got this call. Uh, people are or they're talking about they know what happened with Hoffa like at that exact moment they start <laughs> they start another school for children for delinquent children and and uh, on this like you know remote desert property with really no running water like no electricity and the um, parents and courts were sending underage children here sometimes as many as 40 kids they would have uh, working on that ranch and these are troubled mm. these are troubled kids like you know if you're in juvie and they just don't want to house you anymore send them over to jack and, which is scary yeah because i'm gonna eventually i guess we're gonna have to pick this back up but like i've known people that were out at Jack's ranch as children. This is later, like this is in the late 80s. And like it's scary stuff. Like the you know, I wouldn't send my kid to Jack Oliphant's ranch, but yeah, I mean the Kehoe brothers, for example, mm -hmm. later on, not in this period, right? But like Yeah, right. Right. So it's like, okay, that's the kind of thing that can happen, I guess. Jack's like so you know, the municipalities are sending little kids over to Jack's place to straighten them out. 
and Jack is transporting them to uh, this ranch he has on another area. Um, no, oh, I'm sorry. No, this the, the municipality, the state government, the, not the state government, but the, the government, the local government is like sending them over to the ranch, transporting them out to the ranch. So in 1978, October, this is about a year after that Hawthorne memo, three young girls ages um, two two-year-olds and an eight-year-old these are all daughters because by this point they had brought some of the women to the to the desert like to be with the, the guys and they some of them brought their own children and there's a, a dormitory fire that happens and these three girls are burned to death jeez Apparently, the adults were like attending an evening outdoor prayer meeting somewhere when a fire broke out, and uh, and they get back and like the the whole thing, this whole like little shack they were sleeping in is burned to the ground, and this brings and, and by and those were children of the congregant like of the congregation like they those weren't children that were shipped in those were like one of their own but these these three little girls. Um, burned to death. And I came across this, the Arizona Pioneer and Cemetery Research Project. They, their whole thing is to like document like uh, weird cemeteries uh, or cemeteries. And so they say that the girls' bodies were taken up to the top of a mountain and buried side by side in individual graves. But those researchers from the Arizona Pioneer and Cemetery Project at that same site found 14 more unidentified graves surrounding the children. They thought it was likely that there were more. Ultimately, they determined that um, most of the graves were for adult bodies, but five or six of them, including those three girls, were of children. So we have sort of almost like a residential school situation where there are just like unidentified Mm -hmm. bodies. Yeah. adult and child interesting yeah Jeez. yeah yeah that's about a month later so that's that brings they were pretty good with their neighbors but that fire happens and like there's this article from november 1978 comparing um jack's little venture to jonestown and comparing mm. this is in the ukiah daily journal and talking about Jack's cult, and uh, interesting. So Ukiah was sort of on that tip. The Ukiah Daily Journal, yeah, they're the yeah, ones. Yeah. Yep, and they're talking about this, and they say that one of the church members got really nervous and defected and left the church after. And uh, and this person tells the Ukiah Daily Journal, "Quote Jack Alpha spent." nearly a year learning the ins and outs of maintaining a cult for fun and profit and was closely patterned after those of his leadership methods were closely patterned after those of Jim Jones. And the defector reported that Oliphant had recently announced due to the, un- the growing unfriendliness of neighboring rancher groups that he was going to be moving to Ukiah, California. Oh, interesting. He'd been doing that for 10 years before. Like, I, I think that's, I, I don't know. Obviously, he says he's moving to Ukiah and his methods are very 
much like Jones. And he's getting a lot of his congregation in a similar way as Jim Jones. But I kind of think this is just like... Like bluster, maybe? Yeah, yeah, like it spent nearly a year. He spent at least 10 years learning, you know, so... But it is interesting that he he was uh he did say like oh maybe we'll just move to Ukiah then so like and yeah obviously Jack Alpha is not the only cult leader to get into the child rehabilitation program um, <laughs> yeah so for a while Jim or not Jim <laughs> Jim Alpha Jack Jones <laughs> they're they're getting written up in the paper. Uh, they're getting more and more attention. And in September 1979, they're compared in the paper to Jim Jones again, because about 50 people, and at that point, they had at least 50 people, and Jack said they were expecting 250 more. They, at this point, tell people the paper, they tell the newspaper, Jack does, that people were being raised from the dead out there, that babies had been delivered stillborn and uh through their prayer they were able to bring them back to life oh gosh so jack had always been like all you know scary or like weird things had always been falling or walking with him but at this point now he starts to claim like that the end is nigh and he says he's either going to have to fight communism or the u.s government to protect christians <laughs> so this is when like the really militant talk is first introduced um he has a vision he says of he's going to be killed by a firing squad and the assailants would be wearing u.s uniforms so <laughs> this all comes to a glorious um i don't know it's not an end but like a kind of a climax january 1982 the state like just finally and this is a couple years after all these reports coming out the state finally steps in because five kids escaped jack's ranch and i yeah and they're not the last people to escape jack's ranch but five kids like the juveniles that were like out there being rehabilitated like hike into town escape and like complain complain about like what's happening and the treatment that's going on up there and uh in the state maricopa county juvenile court prohibits him from taking in more children and orders him to return the children that are are present but jack refuses jack refuses and he takes in more children somehow like i don't know where he's even getting them now at this point but like apparently mm. there's a supply that he can get and so yeah rather than comply he just keeps bringing in more kids so in march so this is going on because he's fighting this injunction in court in march 1982 like a newspaper goes out there and they're talking about a 29 year old man who is the children's teacher who had just been released from federal prison earlier that month. And uh, he, he was released on four years probation to Jack Oliphant's custody. Oh, jeez. Um, and, and so he gets out there, and now he's the kid's teacher. What was that guy in prison for, if you know? Five-year sentence for bank larceny in Man Montana. So... <laughs> So yeah, it's not like it's not you know child stuff, but it's it's that. But 
you know, if it's good enough for Jack, like, why question it? Like, let him teach your kids. Um, the, this is the way that the newspaper described the living situation. The children live in a makeshift dorm, corrugated metal building, a roof full of holes in a dirt floor. They sleep in sleeping bags on sheetless stained mattresses on bunk frames. There's no room to move around in the dark dorm because dirty clothes and garbage are heaped up in huge piles everywhere um, in between the spaces between the bunks of these this is that's the boys dormitory the girls dormitory sleep in a grimy single whip trailer heaped with dirty clothes and rubbish beds have no sheets and pillowcases metal springs through the mattresses there's a power generator and water uh the water is provided by a well on the property there's no telephones no radios no means of communication except for a four-wheel drive vehicle so in April 1982, a permanent injunction is issued barring Jack Oliphant from accepting more children for good. And uh, somewhere along the way, also, Jack had begun a logging company um, and had public contract. Here you go. Public contracts to thin trees in Kakano National Forest. Um, so he's running like this. You know, logging venture at the same time it's like he's doing the cult version of the matthew lesco free money from the government just applying for grants all over yeah yeah and getting that <laughs> um yeah and uh that was fine up until like i think i'm gonna save and i'm gonna pick back up on that logging company <laughs> in a second because mm -hmm. that's gonna get real weird and the word brainwashing will come into this story but like <laughs> this is a person i talked to this is a person who left and told me, they said something happened between Jack and his flock um, that resulted in the church, like a lot of dissension in the church. Um, they didn't want to continue with where Jack was leading them. So a bunch of them at this point just take off. He said, the first time I visited them was in the 70s. And then I went again in the early 80s, March 81, 82. And the atmosphere was very different. There was something there that didn't seem right. I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, I'm not sure if there was something they didn't want me to hear or see, but something wasn't right. Hmm. So that, uh, that takes us up to 1982. And we've been talking for nine hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we're not even talking about Tim McVeigh. Up in the morning at half past eight, you can't have your breakfast because you'll be late. You tie your tie like a hangman's loose. Ain't no time to drink it. You see, you run, run. Stand on your polish, you see you run, 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 and you run, 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 run. And the uh, latest quotations from the New York Stock Exchange heart attacks up two and a three quarters, mental illness split three for one, ulcers up 
one. General Chaos. That's General Chaos is up one quarter. The, the Great Society, unfortunately, is down five points. Down at the office, all is still the boss is at a funeral. A note on the door, no work today. Our chief competitor passed away, so you run. So, so yeah, we left off for the points like where Jack's child rearing venture went south after some kids escape Jack Mountain in Wickenburg. Um, and it takes a few years, but and eventually in April 1982, he's prohibited from taking in more children, at least from the local governments supplying him with them. Congregants at this point are increasingly jumping ship and defecting during this period. Um, and it's at that point, as far as I can gather, that anyone left from the original Florida flock, which is just like a handful of people, maybe no more than like three, are like, look, I'm out of here, dude. Um, and when I asked, have asked people to describe what it was like at this time, um, they just say that that Jack and Jack's experimental ministry was getting just increasingly weird and scary, and they mm. they just needed to go like, and it may be you know they probably don't even want to remember why it was weird and scary, but that they all kind of just left at that point. So, so something strange was going on in Jack Jonestown, and now we're at a critical juncture in the Jack story and a mysterious one as well. Um, but it doesn't get better from here. At the time this thing is going on with the kids, Jack's simultaneously running a logging or tree thinning venture in Flagstaff, Arizona, at the northernmost tip of Concanino National Forest, which is about two and a half hours north from where the communal living thing in Wickenburg is happening. Mm -hmm. So he he's like in Wickenburg, but he's He's awarded public contract, public works contracts to to uh, I don't know, thin the trees. I'm not up on my lumberjack lingo today, but so as it was explained to me, he like picked certain congregants that lived on his uh, commune or ranch and send them up there two and a half hours to work in the in the logging or the tree thinning venture. And they'd have to stay there for long periods of time away from their family. And even though Jack had lost and like was continuing to lose his his much of his godly army and therefore his labor force, one of the consistent methods of his church, and this goes back to the early Florida days, had been, and, and I've been told this by that by them themselves, was to go out in the world and recruit and pick up hitchhikers and transients and kind of like bring them back. Um, mm. So. So even after like that, his original flock left, they still had people like they were gen generating people, uh, mainly hitchhikers and transients. Um, and those people were being sent up to this tree thinning venture and they were working their asses off. So about four or five months after the injunction comes down that he can't take in more kids 
It also comes to light in newspapers that Jack's workers have filed wage complaints against him with the Department of Labor, totaling 10 to 12,000, which today is the equivalent of about 30 to 35,000. Not surprisingly, but what is a little jarring to discover when I saw it was that along with the wage complaints over non-payment of wages comes bizarre allegations of Jack's stockpiling illegal firearms, beatings, torture, administering mind-altering drugs to employees to control them. Mm. So basically brainwashing and forced labor. And this is in the newspapers. So basically like, yeah, some Jonestown stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like if it didn't, if it wasn't Jones Townsy before, it was yeah. Jones Townsy now. Mm. <laughs> Jones Townsy. Oh, hello. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the the U.S. Forest Service contract officer said Oliphant was, quote, picking up drunks, taking them out to the camp and trying to get them to work. From what we heard, they were almost kidnapping people and bringing them out there. Um, and this is me now. This like actually squares perfectly with what I'm told by somebody else who later is a part of Jack's like racially focused cults, but it's the same kind of forced labor shit and brainwashing stuff. Uh, but what he, this other guy tells me later is a lot worse because it involves actual murder. But anyways, the inspector for the Forest Service uh, called Jack's camp, quote, unusual. It appeared he was quote, hiring hitchhikers going across state lines and picking up some Indians and putting them to work, end quote. Again, this this squares with what I've been told, even though the person that was later talking to me doesn't know this this stuff. Um, This labor force was made to camp out all winter in the snow. The living conditions were bare. People were living in two pieces of plywood propped up against one another. Garbage is everywhere. This is according to the the officials that were inspecting it. Um, One person claimed that a lot of times the workers would only get a spoonful of oatmeal for dinner. So he was keeping them hungry and tired, Mm. which makes you pliable, right? Needless to say, in early August 83, the public works contracts are withdrawn and Jack's company is debarred from public works projects. By the end of that month, Jack and his wife and uh, assumedly any of the flock that remain, which is probably actually none, made yet another exodus, leaving a huge mess behind, including um, buses that had spray painted washed in the blood on the side. (laughs) 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 Which is just great because it's literal almost. Mm -hmm. This time they go to Kingman, Arizona, the weird town of Kingman, well, they spend about six, Jack and his wife go to D.C. for six months and they come back and now they're in Kingman, Arizona. <laughs> and that's where they stay until the end of the story. Now, Wendy. Yeah. What were they doing in Washington, D.C.? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Ostensibly, the the, the story is that um, his wife's mother was sick. And it's true. His wife's mother did because I did their genealogy. His wife's mother <laughs> died um, around this time period. Uh, however, they're there for quite a while, and 
yeah, what is Jack doing in DC? Because while his wife might be doing one thing, yeah, what uh, it's hard for me to believe that Jack's just there, like I don't know, smoking a pipe, just or chilling, right? Like Jack Alphonse doesn't just chill <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah, the good question and the answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> They leave DC and now they go to Kingdom. Sorry, one more thing. Uh, or what year is this? We're in eighty four. We're in eighty four. Mm. Late eighty three, mid eighty four. Mm. And I'm going to jump for just a m- moment because there's, there's not a lot um, in the interim. But in nineteen eighty five, in Kingman, Arizona, their good Reverend Jack. Resumes his cultish aspirations. Uh, I try to sound clever and I just can't (laughs) talk. So the Reverend Jack resumes his cultish aspirations now under the banner of Christian identity. Um, And one of the huge gaps that has plagued me forever about this is the period between the move to Kingman and all of a sudden Jack's like, it's kind of blank and and the next thing you know, the next time Jack is like surfacing and public stuff is he's a big name in the racialist right. And remember, up till that point, Jack was at least outwardly very inclusive about race. Like a one hallelujah house person told me like that, at least in Florida, Jack would brag. Everyone's welcome in the group. It was like a point of pride that they would accept anybody. So what happened? How do we get him? How do we get Jack? to this Christian identity, like a uh, face, yeah. big name. I have recently discovered two interesting details. Yeah. Um, and, and one of them, thanks to you, and, um, that shed light on this. The first one is this book. One former congregant of Jack's recently told me uh, that in the months before he had left the church, which is like when all the foster home slave labor stuff is happening, Jack had gotten himself a hold of a book and he loved this book. And Jack carried this book with him everywhere. And Jack referred to it and quoted it. But this is also the time where things are getting real weird and people are leaving. But he's, I'm like, was there anything going on? Like, well, he had this book. So the book, the book is called soon coming world shaking events as foretold by god almighty god unveils the future and i like i've been told my <laughs> title is clunky in my book, but, um <laughs> which i don't think it is but it is sure not. like it is longer yeah some people i mean people were actually it kind of like would hurt my feel they were really rude about it like you can't <laughs> ever have a good book with that long that title like I it just had to be like I, I was, it had to be <laughs> wasn't not gonna, negotiating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you. So, but yeah, soon coming world shaking events! Exclamation point. As foretold by God Almighty! Exclamation point. God unveils the future! Exclamation is the title. <laughs> this delightful book is very is like really really hard to under to describe. Um. First of all, the cover attributes no author other than God Almighty. <laughs> um, it was first published in February 78. 
by an organization called Christian Missionary Society. Um, earlier, it had been called American Christian Institute, located in Phoenix, Arizona, which is about 60 miles uh, from Wickenburg, where Jack was living at the time with his people, um, which in that territory makes us, in that terrain is basically next door neighbors. Mm -hmm. The actual author of the book is a guy named John T. Sherritt, um, who is also the president of the, the organization that published it. Um, and the book has several editions, and I'm not sure, but in the one that I have, um, where did I go? Um, well, first of all, I'll just say that this guy, Sherritt's organization, had been investigated by a legislative committee probing tax exemptions claimed by religious education and charitable <laughs> corporations on commercial property, right? <laughs> the organization itself and the ministry it ran was part of the restorationist movement of which William Branham was also a part. Branham. Branham. How do you say it? I say Branham, but I don't know if I'm actually saying it right. You know, it's like Branham, Branham. That, yeah, Branham, Branham. That, yeah, that that's better. I can't, I keep calling him Brahman, and I wish I would stop doing that. <laughs> um, so, but Branham was like best friend, like best buddies with Sherritt, and mentions him in several sermons. Mm. And your as your listeners may be aware. Branham is into the serpent seed theology, which is basically a kinder, gentler form of Christian identity, and it, as I get it, as I am understanding it. Mm -hmm. like, like the show that you did, the guest Marcus? Yeah, he had said, like, you know, while Christian identity is like, we don't, you know, they would exclude the people they thought came from the serpent seed, the uh, serpent or I'm sorry, that came from other races in the in the serpent seed theology, they would include them and try to incorporate them, but then also keep them lower. Was it that the latter rain would um minister to him, but the Christian identity would not minister to like Yeah. Yes, that sounds right. That's I mean that sounds like what how I was understanding mm. it. Um right, the later rain wouldn't they would at least for appearance's sake, yeah, right, minister to them. Christian identity, though, there's no way. Like, yeah. no, not going to happen. Um, so, like, so it's just interesting that Jack ends up, because I was like, I've been for years banging my head, like, what, why, how does this jump happen? But, like, when the guy told me, I don't know what happened, but he was holding this book, and maybe the guy knew more than that and was just giving me a little, but not as much as he could but like a, but sure enough like mm -hmm. this guy Sherritt Branham mentions Sherritt in like a handful of um what do you call sermons that he gives that are publicly online mm -hmm. which I I need to read more carefully but that I was so excited I, that's what I wrote you like oh my god because yeah. no because it's like I, I knew because well now I'm trying to cut you off but like in if you were to like oh. listen to like an NPR style narrative or something, you, it would almost be like taken as a given that like a weirdo Christian cult would turn racist. But like, no, the like, why did that happen? You know, like 
there had to have been a specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. What is the process? Right. You don't, they, you know, you're not just waking up. There has to be a process. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that trip to DC, you know, like I don't, you know, there's a lot more here, but that's a link. And I just knew it. As soon as you were telling me about that guy and, <laughs> and the guy Mercer, I just, you know, it's that intuition factor where I just, I just know. I knew it, but I couldn't, you know, couldn't get to it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, cut me off anytime because I'm rude. Like, I'll just <laughs> no, off fine. and talk. I don't mind. I don't, don't mind being, like, cut off at all. It's good. The book, is, again, the book is really hard to describe, but if I had to do it quickly, I... Have you ever seen a Dr. Bronner soap bottle? <laughs> I have, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, it's like basically that's how it reads. It's like a the back of a, it's like the Dr. Bronner soap bottle, except like really dark and very apocalyptic and virulently anti-communist, <laughs> anti-gay, pretty much like anti everything, but Dr. Bronner's. So like a chick track. Yeah. You know how Dr. Bronner soup bottles have like just like a, long strings of text <laughs> that do and do not make sense sometimes, and yeah. there's no, it's just all of it. It just it has this, it has that feel, except darker and like yeah, anti-communist. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, any I don't know how many copies are floating around out there, but like. And and again, there are different versions. There's some weird shit in this book. Like, uh, like for one, for just for one, forget the what the what it, the book is even saying. But the aesthetics are like quite a thing to behold. Like the font choices, like it'll inexplicably start out with very small, hardly readable font, and then alternate between normal font, bold font all caps like i just it's all over the place um there's weird fold out maps in there the detailed the stages of the end days which i, I love <laughs> um it's like got uh, shoots and ladders but for the apocalypse well it's good to have a road map you know yeah yeah <laughs> right um the map is not the territory <laughs> every so often and I love this, but every so often in this book, and I, I want to see if yours has this or how often, but like an offer is made to give what he keeps calling a love gift of $10,000 to the first person who can use scripture to prove he's wrong about when the rapture is going to occur. But then also later in the book, he offers another love gift of a hundred thousand to fundamentalist preachers who can prove him wrong about when the rapture is going to happen. So it's this like post-trib, pre-trib debate. <laughs> um, so like I don't know, that's just weird. But anyways, this this is the book that Jack Oliphant is obsessed with right before and as he's going full Jim Jones. I found a Tucson Citizen <laughs> ad for this book, which is occurring actually in 1983 as all this stuff's going on and it's like i'm not gonna read the whole thing but i'll post it after this airs but it's like warning hell is waiting for you most people are going to hell wake up you are going to hell like <laughs> it's, a, it's the craziest ad for a book okay so that's the first little thing and the, this is the 
actually that's the one that you without our conversations i could not have i put made the connections to that later rain and mm. that book jack was holding i wouldn't have known what i was looking for i guess so thanks this next song is about the gates of hell it's called the gates of hell So the next connection, um, and slightly more concrete here, is that can help explain the jump from Holy Roller to however you want to describe Jack's next phase, is his acquaintance with a guy named Ty Harding, um, who was like this actor turned anti-communist patriot dude, anti, you know, like tax protester. So I, again, same guy that told me a about the book told me that during the period during that period during the foster home slave labor debacle jack became acquainted with ty harding who is ty harding in the late 70s and early 80s christian identity was part of a, a larger loosely associated network of groups and individuals uh 
one of the most well-known is Reverend Richard Butler of Aryan Nations, um, Colonel William Potter Gale of the California Rangers Committee of the States, and Jim Wickstrom, Posse Comitatus, and a guy named Jack Moore of something called the Christian Patriots Defense League. And from this ideological alliance and the linkages between these groups is a formation in 82 of the Arizona Patriots led by a former television actor turned anti-Semitic text protester, Ty Harden. Um, and he starts the Arizona Patriots along with a guy named Richard Van Hazel in 1982. So Ty Harden and the Arizona Patriots are operating out of Prescott, Phoenix, and Flagstaff, Arizona, um, and other more remote areas of the state. They adhere to Posse Comitatus and Christian identity beliefs and maintain, and maintain ties with the parent organizations who help birth them, including Aryan Nations and Christian Patriot Defense League. So they had no lack of like-minded individuals to fellowship with. In 84, the Aryan Nations World Congress holds training sessions on urban guerrilla warfare <laughs> uh, featuring members of the Arizona Patriots. Also that year in June, the Arizona Patriots issue an indictment against all elected officials <laughs> in Arizona <laughs> and demand their resignation within 30 days. <laughs> then they issue indictments against former deputy Concanino County Sheriff's Department. And remember, Concanino is exactly where the allegations of Jack and his tree thinning operations are coming out of. Hmm. Before we get too far from Ty Harden, I don't know if you saw this. I was just looking at his Wikipedia page. But didn't you mention Merrill's Marauders? Oh, shit. Yes, I did. Oh, shit. And he was in a movie about Merrill's Marauders. No shit. What? <laughs> Directed by Samuel Fuller, of all things, so it's probably pretty good. <laughs> that came in with uh, Jack Oliphant's, like, no, 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 don't be sorry. That's crazy. I mean, I don't know how it all connects, but it was Jack's um, surveillance partner or whatever that was surveilling David Ferry that was in the actual, Okay. that actual I guess unit or company. That's what it was. I was trying to recall. Huh. huh. Interesting. Okay. So that goes also like then that kind of touches back on their whole Rambo, like where is real life and where is mm -hmm. all that? How is um how are movies being influenced by or like what's the relationship between the movies and the people and uh, but uh yeah so that so yeah Ty Harding he uh, uh, he starts the Arizona Patriots like the first big push mm. and uh but after the indictments come down like where the Arizona Patriots demand <laughs> the resignation I don't <laughs> know I honestly what did they think what they were going to get from this but against all elected officials and the sheriff um the FBI starts investigating them and at least officially, like if there was something more going on before that, I'm not aware of it. Um, and that's when the first paid informant and I'll say highly paid informant is planted among the Arizona Patriots. Mm -hmm. So please again, again, like stop me anytime. I'm just like 
going on. I'm trying to power through this. No, for sure. I, so now we're, so now let, let's get Jack. He's in Kingman, Arizona. And uh, Hillary, Hillary on Twitter made a joke saying it's like, where's Waldo? But it's, where's Jack Oliphant? Well, <laughs> in 1985, Jack Oliphant is in the weird ass desert town of Kingman, Arizona, located on Route 66, about 103 miles south of Vegas. Uh, and he names this 320 acre property Hepzibah Ranch, which is like a, a figure in the Book of Kings of the Bible, the wife of Hezekiah, King of Judah. It, the, this property is extremely difficult to access, as I found out in a little rental car I was driving when I tried to. I had been warned, like, dude, you can't go up there without like you know, a truck, like a fort. You, know, you need you can't just go up there in a car and i'm like i can do whatever i want <laughs> and like i almost got myself stuck like it was and it was night it was pretty scary so never i have not yet attempted this again but uh yeah you can't just go up in your little car it's very hard to access um <laughs> so by this point so Jack's a member of the christian patriots defense league an outfit run by retired army colonel jack Gordon Jack Moore, an evangelist who preached white supremacy and billed himself as an expert in brainwashing and psychopolitics. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have more on that, but that's, yeah. Look at that guy. Uh, Jack is now a leader of and among the most extreme of the Arizona Patriots. I'm not exactly sure what happened with Ty Harden, but at some point Jack becomes the face of their and the most extreme face of the Arizona Patriots, who's at at, the, at its height is 200 members. And in this capacity, Jack is now a close associate, not of Jesus Christ, <laughs> but of a network of right wing terror uh, terrorists, would be terrorists. Praise the Lord. Uh, Arizona Patriots' emphasis on guerrilla training couldn't have dampened Oliphant's attraction to them, as this was an old hobby of his and his previous covert occupation. Oliphant told more than one person that he chose the Kingman property because it offered advantages to fight sustained guerrilla war and because of its proximity to hydroelectric dams on the Colorado River. <laughs> Remember, too, that Jack Olivant had claimed numerous times that he helped train the Mujahideen. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about the same time period that Reagan's military and national security advisors agree to provide the Mujahideen with the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. So it's all coming together. Uh, I didn't take you here for no reason. Um, Jack was a big, imposing man with big, imposing dreams and had not given up his noble desire to educate the youth. He hoped to establish, and now this is like, this is where he comes back into public like view. He hoped to establish on his Kingman property a Christian identity youth camp and Christian identity family religious retreat where he hoped to operate war games. So it was like fun for the whole Christian identity family. And to that end, Jack began using the Christian Christian Patriots Defense newsletter to solicit funds and assistance in developing the site. But the ads would warn people moving to the area will be carefully screened. So Jack wasn't just letting anyone in anymore. That idea had gone out the window. 
Jack continues his ministry, holding meetings at the ranch where the only amenity was a portable generator used for repeated showings of the anti-communist movie Red Dawn. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, was one of McVeigh's like favorite movies as a as a young as a youngster. While Hepzibah Ranch never quite became the next area nations, it did earn notable mention among the movement as a paramilitary training camp. And like always, Oliphant provided a home for at least a small flock of troubled youth upon whom he could impart the ways of the Lord, including, but in no way is limited to, I'm not even going to get into all of them, but the most famous or mm-hmm. probably scariest of these young men who... Um, were sent to Jack's ranch were the Kehoe brothers. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, by the way, are also connected to McVeigh and the bombing plot. But yeah. also to Israel Keys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were, yeah, they kind of grew up together, right? Or mm-hmm. They were his closest friends at one point. Man, those K- those guys are those guys are scary. Mm-hmm. As is, in fact, I was telling you about the keys, like that stupid show in Marky Mark, and uh, <laughs> and I tried to watch the Israel Keys one, and it was like at night, and like I just got, I just couldn't, I just couldn't deal with it right then. So so instead, I watched the Jim Jones one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it's so it's so much more recent and just troubling, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, so the Keho. So like Jack, you know, he's he he's an educator. He <laughs> he's committed to educating the youth, <laughs> educating them <laughs> in robbing banks. Yeah, yeah, and, and like bomb building. But yeah, at, and exactly the events at the retreat, <laughs> the retreat came to include explosives training, um, and of course, like just repeated. And this this is like to his dying day. Jack Oliphant was obsessed with the movie Red Dawn, um, hmm. which I I will bring up in a little bit, but. A later FBI report noted that, like, strewn all over his property, which was heavily guarded and difficult to access, were shell casings and hundreds of rocket ammunition crates. <laughs> Again, bringing us to, like, the other stuff we talked about. Why all the guns and security precautions, Jack? Well, he believed the communist inv- invasion was nigh and was preparing to stave it off. Or at least that's what he preached, right? I don't know what he really believes or not yeah that was the message so the, the, eventually they would start to de- the plan they were going to wage an underground war and it would consist of assassinations and all kinds of other hijinks um and to bring on this revolution they were going to use a truck bomb to bomb a jewish synagogue in an irs building in ogden utah utah and a and electric dams on the Colorado River. So Jack designates this kid, 23-year-old kid, ranch hand uh, named Monty Ross, as the designated bomb maker for the group. And uh, Jack sets about set, goes about making um, 
I suppose on VHS, bomb making videos for the purposes of distributing them to other Christian identity groups. So now he's like he's stepping up, like stepping it up. Uh, and to fund their hobbies, they just <laughs> they decided they needed to yeah, rob banks and armored cars, steal <laughs> weapons, including wall rockets from military bases. And when the wall rocket scheme failed, they settled on obtaining like an uh, selling just guns and they set about designing a ray gun or laser weapon that could vaporize the enemy and leave no trace <laughs> at this point or undercover now there's more than one undercover informant and soon to be agents like legit just agents infiltrating jack's little band of patriots to the point where at any given planning session there would be one to three over undercover agents in attendance so <laughs> now now this is Right. This is some of the plants gained access through introductions made by uh, big Christian identity movement names with whom Jack had now become really good friends, like Richard Butler being one of them. Uh, the public caught on. So the, and this is interesting. Again, the public caught on like at this point in the mid 80s to the growing paramilitary mercenary school trend through the country. Um, and just as all this was going on with Jack's um, waging, getting ready to wage war, the, there's an episode of the A-Team, um, which I don't know if it really is based on Oliphant, but it looks like it to me. Because the episode description reads, Murdoch masquerades as a fire and brimstone preacher to rescue Hannibal from a paramilitary organization. Like mm -hmm. he goes undercover as this like Jack Oliphant figure. I'm sure there was a lot of them running around, but I, I, I also watched every episode of Eighteen. <laughs> so okay, so in that mm -hmm. in that episode, basically a guy is going undercover as a doomsday preacher in order to help the Eighteen, or is it the Eighteen doing it? I guess I. I need to go back and watch the episode. It's been a few years, but have have you seen the eighteen? Like, if I say if I say names of characters, uh, I've seen episodes, but I don't recall. Like, it was like when I was a kid, basically. So Murdoch is like this. He's the one I always liked as a kid. He's like this. He's just crazy. Like he's nuts. Uh, he's obviously. Oh, he's the yeah the crazy yeah. One. I had some kind of crush on him. <laughs> I think I was a kid, but he—it's just he's like wacky. Mm -hmm. uh, but but now, like looking back as an adult, I'm like, oh, I wonder if Murdoch was mind controlled or like <laughs> what happened to his brains. But as a kid, I I just liked him. But yeah, he masquerade. He actually masquerades okay. as a as like a Jack Oliphant type to rescue Hannibal, who's the leader of the group. Okay, from a paramilitary organization. I would need to go back and watch the episode because I forget the ins and outs. But I mean, I put it in my notes because I rem I can I do remember thinking like this is like Jack Oliver. Mm. It's like he's taking on all the I, I don't know. He's donning a Jack Oliver like persona, but trying to rescue Hannibal, the leader. Would that that were like what you were actually doing <laughs> right 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 well right 
Right. Or is this alluding, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's any concrete link here, but like, is Jack himself an actor yeah. masquerading as a preacher? Yeah, because he like made a sudden heel turn into like racist Christian identity preacher. And it's like, was that real? I don't know. Like, yeah. And was anything like the, at least the people that knew him from even the earlier church? sometimes they're like we didn't i don't really know they didn't well at least one person has so like they just didn't know if jack was sincere or not but at that point it didn't matter because of their comrades like because they had formed these relationships but the, they there was questions about jack's sincerity anyways even before all this so yeah yeah uh so but like jack his taste for popular culture doesn't not seem to extend beyond red dawn (laughs) but he was growing really impatient to begin the revolution but he was working with a bunch of jokers um at one point the arizona patriots decide to rob an armored car transferring money from vegas casinos at first they considered Mm. using exploding arrows to overcome the truck and driver and then a homemade mortar device which would fire pipe bombs to pry open the truck but they realized they'd burn up the money in the process so they scrapped that plan that sounds like some mickey mouse bullshit (laughs) yeah i mean i have a list of like all the weird ass plots like it was like almost keystone cops i guess like one involved blocking the road by staging a car accident and when the truck stops shoot some type of gas and put the guards in the truck to sleep (laughs) take the truck with the guards transfer the money bury the truck with a bulldozer and leave the guards to wake up in the desert but that plan and that was a plan got monkey wrenched because the bomb maker uh, monty ross the kid ends up in the hospital after a practice pipe bomb blew off two of his fingers. So they're forced to reschedule the armored truck robbery. So then, so like just all kinds of things are happening. Key conspirators would fail to show up at meetings. Like one of them, the guy that was supposed to procure the gas to subdue the truck drivers, the day before the robbery is supposed to go down, didn't have it. And he said he couldn't remember the kind of gas he needed. Alphonse is furious at this point. Like, all kinds of shit. Like, they're just, every mistake, it's, it's just like a cartoon in my mind. Because I, <laughs> um, they're, they're so un- incompetent. And Jack is, like, getting really mad. And so Jack is so eager for competent people to work with that he readily accepts an FBI agent who responds to his ad in the white premises newspaper and make and jack makes him head of security at the ranch <laughs> uh which is interesting because like Halloween city you know like all the top people are all either informants or even international agents it's uh <laughs> wasn't strassmeyer yeah. head of security yes <laughs> that's the yeah that's who i was thinking yeah of. yeah, yeah. And, but even the leader of Halloween city was himself an fbi informant mm. like but but right yeah head of security uh so, so like meanwhile was so frustrated all of thought himself 
he was always partial to the idea of blowing up the Hoover Dam and other critical infrastructure, but he just wants to get on with the and get on with the armored truck robbery scheme so he can do this. But it was not to be because um, before he could execute his plans and probably kill themselves in the process, 75 FBI agents raid his ranch and arrest him and nine other Arizona Patriot members for a variety of weapons and explosives charges. So in this case, like they did intervene and arrest him and uh, Oliphant is sentenced to four years um, for a plot to hijack Frank's armored trucks um, to fund the white supremacist movement. Uh, it turns out, though, that the undercover activities culminating in the FBI raid on Oliphant's ranch, his arrest and imprisonment, as, and as well as that of seven other Arizona patriots, were a small slice of a much larger multi-million dollar FBI-led investigation sting operation called Operation Clean Sweep. Mm. But that that resulted in the trials and convictions of dozens of other far right far right leaders in a number of states, including various big names connected to Aryan nations, one of them being uh, Oliphant close family friend Richard Wayne Snell, who in 1983 uh, was part of a failed plot to bomb the Murrah building mm. and became a martyr when he was executed the day of the Oklahoma City bombing in 95. Interesting. And clean sweep would in time give birth. And I believe like if there's a genealogy here, I, I see it as clean sweep gives birth to PatCon, another multi-agency sting up. Mm. Oh, okay. Now thank you for being patient. We're <laughs> almost through with all of that and back to McVeigh. But so Jack gets paroled. Now we're in 1989. Jack gets paroled. And during his time in prison, and like even before that, he's like best buddies with like all these big people, including Lewis Beam. Like he knows the whole identity network because now Jack Oliphant is being thought of as a political prisoner. I have to wonder, I I have no reason to think he wasn't legitimately arrested. On the other hand, like In, the, in my dark fantasy, I sometimes <laughs> wonder, like, was he just, you know, like, just go away, do your time, we'll let you out in a couple of years, and, and then you'll keep going. What, four years seeming a little late? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's not like they don't sometimes have people take minor sentences to build cred, right? Yeah, right. So why, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not a crazy thought. I have nothing to say that, but in, again, yeah, in that dark imagination that isn't necessarily unplausible, implausible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm ta I'm going to be talking about a source I had that spent, as a young man, quite a bit of time up, up in Jack's ranch. Okay, so I so I have this source, and the source as a young man has spent just like I guess the Cahoe brothers, but 
I'm not comparing him to the Cahoe brothers, mm-hmm. but spent a lot of time up at Jack's ranch as a kid, as a young guy. And um, Jack Oliphant's wife confirmed to me that he used to be up there all the time when I spoke to her. She's dead now. But so he's talking and he's saying, we rolled up to Hezba Hez, Hez Ranch at night. And, and you don't just roll up to the ranch. You have to go through at least eight gates. Um, and when we got there, we were greeted by a, a and they're, they like roll up to Jack Oliphant's property and they're greeted by a Hispanic guy with an assault rifle. Um, he says AK-47 or SKS. I'm not really sure. Anyways, this guy gives us the Hail Yahweh white power salute, the Hail Hitler Sig Heil salute. And behind him was an older man wearing a hat. Um, the younger Hispanic guy was in his early 20s. He was just a kid. In fact, he's older than the source is at the time um he he says he definitely looked hispanic or latin like he did not belong in a white power militia camp like whatever was going on he he didn't belong there hmm. um but the older man standing behind him had one arm and he was holding a gun in his other hand um and he somehow he says he somehow put the gun under his other sausage arm and <laughs> gave us the hail yahweh white power salute and that was jack oliphant yeah, we're in 1989, if I forgot to say that. But Jack introduces us and then points to the Hispanic guy. And he says, this is Johnny, our Mexican slave. That's exactly what he said. It seemed like a joke, but I knew in my gut it was real. Johnny seemed pleased to be there, just like a happy monkey. He seemed like he was very eager to please Jack. He did everything and anything for him. He fed the animals, the goats, the dogs, went to the creek to collect the water. He was Jack and Margot, Jack's wife's servant. According to Jack, um, Jack and his wife had, had been out driving and saw this guy johnny the mexican slave hitchhiking after being released from the state prison in arizona like jack and his wife had been hitchhiking and they pick up johnny the mexican slave who had just been released from the state prison in arizona he hadn't even made it to civilization yet probably hiked 100 miles when jack and margo picked him up so just real quick remember about the tree thinning, like how they were getting labor was like picking up hitchhikers and transients and, and turning them. And that's in newspapers, turning them into brainwashed slaves. Mm. You remember that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just, to me, there's a continuity here of a message. A certain modus operandi. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's its own weird ass place, mm. but it's just so eerie there. The this this the story I'm gonna tell you is like it's just so creepy to me. It's creepy on its own, but then if you place it into the twilight zone of Kingman, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's even more creepy. Um, anyways, so but my source is saying that Johnny the Mexican slave um seemed comfortable being there like he accepted the situation he accepted the dehumanizing remarks that jack made about him being a slave he didn't he didn't even flinch it he says it was weird and uncomfortable and awkward we didn't know exactly if 
if Jack was being funny or maybe he wasn't really the hardcore racist he said he was, but we later learned that he was the hardcore mm. racist he said he was. So the first night the source gets there, this is the first time they're up on Jack's property. Jack tells them that the FBI regularly flies over his property with helicopters so close that it would shake the cabin. He says, 10 minutes later, a fucking helicopter. <laughs> it's like two in the morning. He says, middle of nowhere, like 20 feet is above, is about 20 feet above the cabin. And we go out there and he says, and it is the goddamn, it has no goddamn lights on it. No lights. I mean, it was fucking military. Are we talking black helicopters? <laughs> yes. Flying over Jack's property and that was my he says, that was my first night at Jack Oliphant's. He says it almost seemed staged somehow. Mm. Like, because Jack is saying, it's crazy. These helicopters fly over my property. And like 25 minutes later, a black helicopter is hovering over the property. <laughs> he says, Jack was a mean, mean, scary man. He would talk about how he liked to kill chickens. He would hang them upside down because he liked to watch them bleed to death. Um, people would go up to Oliphant's ranch for training. He was indoctrinating him into this offshoot of his own white supremacy Christian identity. He had amazing influence and power over people, almost like brainwashing. They looked up to him like their father. Mm. He had power over them. Um, he says, being at Jack's, just traveling because it was such rugged terrain, it was miserable. Um, and then you get there, and, and this is funny because this is a public information about Jack Oliphant. He says, when you get there, you could always hear the generator going. They were always watching one movie, Red Dawn. <laughs> Every time we would go there, he would make us watch Red Dawn. And then later, a McVeigh investigator that goes up there, he says the same thing about Red Dawn. He's like, he, he's just like, it's all, it's like the catcher in their eye, but it's, now it's Red Dawn. Yeah, like, I know it's a brainwashing thing, probably, but it's like, it's not even that good of a movie unpopular opinion it's it's fine <laughs> like i wouldn't watch that endlessly you know separate from brainwashing i guess no it's so it's like a really unsophisticated for someone as like old as jack is at this point like yeah i don't know what he's getting out of this other than the simplest ideas of reinforcing those yeah like I guess it reinforces that siege mentality that seems to be so crucial for cults. Yeah, yeah, and there, you know, there's the the communists and the taking our guns mm -hmm. away stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw this the remake of that movie. <laughs> yeah, um, it did. Ten years. Yeah, in that time, is now is the North Korean. <laughs> Even more straining believability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I went to see that movie. Because of the because of because of Red Dawn because of this stuff, but uh, so so the other so the besides Red Dawn, the only other tapes he had were like uh, homemade bomb making tapes and um, sometimes uh, videos of him pouring liquid C four onto a road. He says Jack taught me a lot of things about explosives. I'm going on and on, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna I'll I'll spare you some of these details. Uh but it, this is kind of a funny story. So Jack has, of course, this kid, the source 
building barbed wire fences around his post and they'd have to help him. And at one point, the source hammers like a nail through his thumb and like a huge hole in his thumb. Mm. And it was bleeding all over the place. So I went up to Jack thinking, telling him I needed stitches or something. And Jack says, Margo, get the cayenne pepper. <laughs> and Jack grabs him and just dumps the cayenne pepper into the hole, packs it in with his dirty, greasy fingers and says, that'll heal it up. Go back there. Go back down and get back to work. He's like, and, and the source is like, my hand hurts. <laughs> and Jack's like, you little sissy. And he says he'll always remember it because he has only called a sissy like twice in his life and one was that time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wait, so I guess the cayenne pepper worked though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked. It worked. Okay. First aid tip of the day, I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess it's a good homeopathic remedy to know. <laughs> if you don't have access to stitches, maybe. Yeah, I'll like Holy shit. I don't know how that works. Like, I, you know, I don't know how that would work, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it appears to have worked. And remember, like, Jack, like, they didn't really believe in, in doctors or anything. So they must have come up with good ways to deal with certain situations. <laughs> Jack kept trying to get the source and his, like, um, buddies that he would bring up there um, involved in plots that he says plots that would have made the Oklahoma City bombing look like nothing. Jack wanted us to take out the Hoover Dam. So Jack has never given up this stupid idea of blowing up the Hoover Dam. Jack had it all planned out. Uh, we'd knock out the power lines and take out the rest of the dams and cause power outages. He had it all figured out. He says, Jack would say, what do you think all the N-words in California are going to do when their power goes out? That's how we're going to start the race war. He said he could just, Jack could not let go of the Hoover Dam idea, even though he knew it would kill thousands. And we were thinking, this guy is fucking crazy. <laughs> and then like, then he's like, there was other weird stuff, like the helicopter landing on his roof, uh, and that happened more than once, like that this helicopter would appear and and Jack would have them run out and try to chase the helicopter away. And Jack had them string cables across this vast property canyon. And that was one of our jobs. It was anti-aircraft. That's what it was for. He wanted them to crash. He wanted them to get tangled up in the fucking cables. But of course, they never did. We strung these cables and laid them across the canyon. It was really hard work. It was almost a quarter mile of cables. As soon as we would get them up, we'd hike back down the mountain and uh, Jack would tell us to string more. Then after we did it, like three weeks later, Jack cut them all down. He went up there and cut them all down. As soon as we got to the last cable, he cut them down. I don't know why he cut them down. It was really weird. That whole place was really weird. <laughs> so another thing that maybe like someone else can, maybe someone could help me make sense of is in 1989, Jack had a satellite receiver. Uh, he could talk to people through satellite, not a satellite dish, mm. a huge pole that went very high up and had all kinds of shit sticking out of it. Jack is the first person I knew that had a, computer that was the first time i ever heard what the internet was he was living in a handmade cabin 
but he had sophisticated equipment. Mm-hmm. He could call you through satellite. He would he he knew when it was time to make a call because the satellite, I guess, had to be in a certain position. He said, I never saw anything like it again. It was really spooky. Um, he told he also told them that if the feds ever came and raided their ranch, they had to kill all their women. The first thing we were supposed to do is kill all the women, every single one of them. And my source's wife confirmed this. She remembers because it would because Jack said it would be better to shoot them than let them get captured and tortured. He said it is better to kill them than let the feds burn them alive. And we don't want our women burning alive, do we? I remember thinking, can't we just take the women with us? <laughs> he said, it's better not to take the chance. So Jack's telling me I was going to have to shoot my wife. Women had it pretty bad. They had to sleep in sheds when they got their periods, even their wives. Uh, classic biblical living. Yeah. With the uh, satellite thing. I know you haven't read this part yet in the colony, but uh, oh, you remember the... Uh, the LeBaron ranch also had like a NSA ass like comms situation. Granted that was not in the nineties. That was more recent, but uh, interesting. Like Jack is not, like he's not, yeah, he's not a technology guy, right? Like he's not a nerd. No, who set him up with (laughs) this shit? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who did? And the the thing is, I believe I want to say it was Lewis beam also had some of the like he was one of the first to use technology to to just communicate through this network of underground white supremacists and i know that jack knew lewis beam so i i don't know Hmm. i don't know but it's intriguing because it's like this we're talking about the late 80s and a guy who isn't like peter computer guy yeah it just raises so many Um, questions (laughs) jack all thought jack all thought um i'm we're someday soon we're really close to i think being done with jack and catching back up to mcveigh but it'll all come together so my source of a a for name right he's a skinhead and and uh, he had a literally escaped Jack Oliphant's ranch. His had been arrested, ended up taking a plea. But when he got out, he like took off and I, I like fled. And this was 1991. And decides the safest place he could hide is Jack's ranch. And so, so had like a few kids and a wife. And he takes him up there. And also Johnny the Slave is still up there at this point. And apparently it had gotten really weird out there because Jack started making the wife sleep in a different building, even though they already had children together. Uh, and and they, But they weren't legally married. So all of them, at some point, all of them, wife, the children, and Johnny the Slave, uh, they start making plans that they're going to escape Jack's ranch. And they did escape. But on the way out of town, the transmission on vehicle gives out and they broke down in the desert and they were freaking out because, because they had stolen Jack, they had stolen Jack's Nissan and all his guns in the process of escaping. <laughs> and so my source gets a call from 
out of the blue one day and he's like, I'm at the petrol station in Kingman. We need help. We, we're trying to get away from Jack's. Jack's gone fucking crazy. Jack's going to kill everybody. So he goes out there and he picks up and he says they were dirty and scratched up. And who was a former Marine was terrified. He was scared to death. And he's like, we have to go back uh, because he had hiked a bunch to get to the phone. He's like, we got to go back and get my wife and, and the other people. And they, they did. They went back. They got him. They got the kids. And they took him back to Vegas and nursed him back to health. But they were in very rough shape. They were they were terrified because they thought Jack would be coming any minute to get them. But as far as they knew, Johnny the Slave had actually gotten away. They didn't pick up Johnny the Slave. He at some point is like, I'm going this way. You guys go that way. And Johnny the Slave apparently according to this story is the like had possession of some of these guns. And so, so at that point they kind of cut off like my source and all these people, they cut off contact with Jack. Like, it's nuts. But in 1992, after Ruby Ridge, they did see Jack again and Jack acted like he had forgiven everyone for kind of abandoning him. But at some point he mentions offhandedly that he murdered Johnny the slave hmm. and Margot Jack's wife confirmed it. He said that the Mojave County Sheriff's deputy who happened to be a friend of Jack Oliphant's pulled over a stolen Nissan that Johnny was driving. And when it was searched, they found Jack's firearms who Jack had reported stolen along with the car. Johnny was arrested and the sheriff called Jack and told him, I got your stolen property. So Jack goes to the jail. He bails Johnny out, picks him up, acts like he's going to let him come back. Everything was forgiven. He's going to feed him. And whether through coercion, force, or his own free will, Johnny did return with Jack. And according to what Jack and Margot said, sometime after they got out there, Jack took Johnny out, shot him between the eyes, blew his brains out, took his body, buried him up there in a cave where no one will ever find him. He said he also killed Elfie. Now, Elfie was a chemist who had been living on the Oliphant Ranch. He knew how to make explosives. He mm. was Jack's new bomb builder. Jack claimed that he had found gay porn that Elfie was hiding, and so he blew his brains out, too. I said, where is Elfie? And Jack says, up there on the hill, I blew his brains out, same as Johnny. And my source says, this is what he told me. I don't know the truth of it, but I believe it. You know, maybe Jack was trying to scare us, but I don't think so. You, you had to know Jack. I don't think he was lying. And my source says, and my source doesn't like have the news articles and stuff about Jack. He says they ran a fucking Jim Jones type deal, <laughs> but at a smaller scale. Yeah, I mean, sure freaking sounds like it. That's crazy. And that story that I just told you about that, th those two murders, like I have never once talked about that publicly mm -hmm. or except for a draft that I gave to Roger Charles have never, have never uh, shared. So thank you. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. I mean, there's some things though. It's like just like I, I like live because that story. You know, I, I, I don't know what am I supposed to do about that. I don't know Johnny's last name. I don't know. 
I, I don't know what to do with that, but that's a, that's just a little bit like to shed light on Jack Oliphant. Yeah. But why have I told you all of this? It's because <laughs> of McVeigh's connections to Jack Oliphant, mm -hmm. which I didn't, I don't even think I mentioned the Oliphant name in Aberration, although I allude to him whenever I'm talking about weird things in Kingman. Believe me, that Jack is always there. I just wasn't ready yet to, I didn't, I, again, I just didn't have uh, it all put together. I didn't have the space. But um, what what is, like, McVeigh is calling Johnny. And if you've read my book, you know who Johnny Bangerter is. Mm -hmm. McVeigh is trying to frantically call Bangerter, and he keeps attempting to be, like, to make connections to Johnny Bangerter. And in order to do so, he says, hey, I'm friends with Jack Oliphant. I'm friends with other members of the Arizona Patriots. I'm I'm friends with the uh, Richard Kaufman who runs the National Alliance out there. Like, but one yeah, one of the names McVeigh is using to establish his bona fide bona fides bona fides is Jack Oliphant's name. And one former member of the Arizona Patriots that I met, who I, I swear to God, this has got to be the scariest person I ever met in my fucking life. Uh, scary guy but he said yeah McVeigh used to stay up at Oliphant's and even um Jack Oliphant's widow confirmed that to the to McVeigh's defense team mm -hmm. and to a journalist in Kingman so at one point it was like common knowledge that McVeigh had a relationship with Oliphant but it, it, it got obscured and buried um now McVeigh himself as I remember the bombing happens in April 95 in June 95 McVeigh's denying to his defense team that he knows Oliphant, but he says, but he is able to describe in detail how to access the remote back entrance of the private property leading to Jack's ranch, <laughs> which is nearly impossible to get to. Then McVeigh, in his true to character, gives another story. He's like, well, okay, yeah, I hid explosives up there in, in that hard to access area. Then a few months later, McVeigh says, yeah, I spent just considerable amount of time practicing setting off explosives there. And then shortly before his execution, McVeigh admits um, that Jack and Margot picked him up, he says, to help him change a tire. Now, <laughs> uh, in the late summer and early fall of 1995, one of the Jones team investigators makes a trip up there. And Jack Oliphant actually writes McVeigh a, a letter that's delivered to McVeigh in prison. Um, and the, the letter seems to lift McVeigh's spirits. And McVeigh then gives a message to Oliphant. And he wants, and this is the investigator writing, he said, Mr. McVeigh wanted to make sure that I thanked Mr. Oliphant and tell him that he, Oliphant, could understand why he couldn't write back, but that he really appreciated the support. Mr. McVeigh asked me to make sure and destroy the letter written by Mr. Oliphant because he didn't want any future problems for him. So, and then finally on, I think here, my last word on Oliphant, I believe is that um, while it while it's not in the first book, it, it is gonna be in the second as best as I can, is that there are connections between Oliphant and more, which I can, flesh out so that's it that's all of fun let me ask you one more i guess yes. related to this mm -hmm. michael fortier is that how you say his oh, name? right 
Fortier. Fortier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he seem to know Oliphant since he, I guess he grew up in Kingman? Yeah. And he also was um, known, you know, he knew the remnants of the Arizona Patriots that were still milling around in Kingman and surrounding areas. Yes. Uh, I don't have a lot more on Four Days Association uh, early on when I was a little more naive or at least, you know, I less careful or I probably still do it today, but I didn't think twice then. I showed up at his mother's door mm. or his mother's door. Um, now, remember, Four Days in witness protection mm -hmm. at that point, I think so. But uh, she like yelled at me. She's like, get out of here. <laughs> what do you, makes you think you can come over here? And I'm like, I'm just trying to. I'm just, just trying to talk to your son, man. <laughs> but yeah, that, that didn't get me very far. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, Orde was well, yeah, he had grown up in Cayman. He associated with, um, I don't know how closely, but he knew these remnants of the Arizona Patriots. And that's in documents. Um, mm. Yeah. But Orde is a, is, a guy, is a weird guy because he's like a, He's just like a stoner. Like he's, <laughs> he's not the brightest guy. You know, he's kind of just like a hippie. Not a hippie. Really, like if a hippie took a lot of meth and lived in the desert. <laughs> he's just like this 90s stoner guy with a flannel shirt, kind of. Desert rats. Yeah, desert rat. Yep. And, you know, I'm not saying 48 was a, up to you know, good, but just like... Mm -hmm. He, he he's not doesn't he was definitely running some of the more stolen quote unquote stolen guns you know but but not like a cadre like in the oliphant camp or something yeah okay yeah but he would have he would have known oliphant because kingman was a really small town mm -hmm. um he would have known oliphant in fact oliphant has a a, a post office box in the same um, little like rent a post office box place called the mailroom that Jack Oliphant had a post office box. McVeigh had a post office box, and a guy named Stephen Colburn, who's like this alien UFO bomb maker, dude, <laughs> he also has a post office box in the same place. Um, or he, he picks up McVeigh's mail, yeah, like they're all connected. There's <laughs> Through this post office box, um, I have like, I mean, I would bet my both my arms and my legs. Like, not only does Forty know McVeigh, or I mean Oliphant, but like, I I would bet that the connection goes deeper. Now, I have nothing to, no reason, nothing solid to to think that. Forty was up at Jack's ranch. Forty doesn't seem the type of uh, material that Jack's looking for <laughs> in a soldier. Then again, he did have a lot of drags in the first place. That's true, too. Uh, but forty, uh, forty is weird, and it's something I, I have never quite gotten to the bottom to. But like his military records also go missing, and he also spends a lot of time at the VA. Mm. Make of that what you will. You know, but even in the army, he was just this kind of lackluster, slacker kind of guy. Not a super soldier. Right. He was no Tim McVeigh. <laughs>
You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you. God bless.